Cleveland, Ohio. A land of strange rituals. The savage horrors of fearsome mutated beasts. Back from the dead. Kept alive by experimental science. Science runs amok when human beings tamper with unknown forces. Now at last, the real shocking story can be told. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. A nightmare combination of shock and terror, and you're invited. A foolish you. Something evil. You're up there wearing that goofy thing, lighting up cars, calling yourself the shock of the shock of the shock people. What is this, pro wrestling? Not recommended for impressionable children. This is not pro wrestling. But we do like to shock people from time to time. Welcome to It Came From Cleveland, episode 21 for uh, September 10th, 2021. Um, and of course, uh, we took off last week. My sinuses, thank you. My allergies, thank you. <laughs> Uh, my itchy eyeballs, thank you. Uh, and of course, uh, welcome to the show of uh, Joe Santorsa, uh, also co-host of the Tim Coromel Show. Uh, welcome uh, to the program tonight. You you have a, a, a certain special somebody you're going to be talking about later tonight? Uh, one Peter Sellers. That's right. Yes, and I have uh, four clips of his that um, are my favorites. <laughs> I thought it was three, but if you say four, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> uh, oh, oh, there's the one more. Okay, don't worry, I'll just be able to play it from uh, from the uh, the thing. I did the picture didn't show up for it, so I got because um, I just played the videos right out of our thing here. Anyway, oh, yeah. uh, so uh, and of course, uh, Miles, welcome to you. You're gonna uh, regale us with some more at uh, this moment in history uh, stuff tonight. What do you have? Uh, I got a, a, a tale of a bomber or two. Uh, we'll see how time flows with my stories. Definitely got the uh, yeah tale of two bombers. The first one I'm going to be talking about was uh, happens to be known as the Phantom Fortress. Very mythical. Uh, yeah, good, good, uh, good story. And if I get to the second one, yeah, well, I'll talk about it when I get to it. All right, sounds good. And Michelle, you've got a horrific birthday to celebrate uh, tonight, which is uh, very exciting. Oh, yeah, one of the classics, uh, Mr. Jeffrey Combs. So, you know, he's he, he's great, and he, he's just about in everything, and he's still doing stuff. So. I know, I know. And, you know, he's, he's uh, and of course, uh, he was in, he's been in a lot of, of fun um, uh, Lovecraft type stuff, so uh, th that's, yes, that's very cool. And um, uh, was he who's in From Beyond? Wasn't he? Um, possibly. Um, I know he's done a lot of voiceover work too. And, yeah. Um, and one of my one of the films I actually enjoy, he does a really great soliloquy in it or a talk in it that you guys will love. So all right. Awesome. So, well, we have uh, uh, loads, and thanks again to Michelle for doing uh, our research for us for our celebrity birthdays to choose from for the show. Um, I just got done talking about Batman, the Tim Burton Batman movie, uh, the other day, 
And, of course, his, the, uh, another uh, uh, star, not, of course, the director, Tim Burton, uh, but one of the stars, uh, that would be one, uh, Michael Douglas. That was his real name before he had to change it to Michael <laughs> Michael Keaton because Michael Douglas uh, already took his name. <laughs> I don't know if anybody knew that, but yeah, he... Um, Michael John Douglas is what he was born in on September 5th, 1951. So he's just 70 years old. Uh, and uh, he his alma mater is Kent State University. Look at that. Even got an Ohio connection. Isn't that fun? And, That's neat. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, he, uh, you know, Michael Keaton, he's done a lot of great stuff. A lot of uh, really good comedy stuff. And he's been flexing his chops uh uh, lately in some award-winning um, uh, drop, uh, dramatic things. And even, you know, even in the 80s and 90s, he was doing dramatic stuff, if you're counting the, um, you know, the Batman movies. And more recently, he's been doing the Spider-Man movies. And there's another movie I want to talk about uh, that he did that won a lot of awards back in 2014. But we'll get to that because I'm going to play these clips in order for you. But uh, the the first one I want to play for you right now, I have a little personal, uh, just a tiny little personal connection to this uh, first movie. Uh, when I was, I guess, 15 years old, actually maybe 14, um, uh, the movie Gung Ho, if anybody remembers it, it was about a uh, um, an American automotive manufacturing plant. And, of course, there you go, file under special interest for me and my family because my dad was a lifelong auto worker. And I was uh, in, um, and it was about a, a Japanese uh, company who was coming in to um, kind of partially take over. And uh, it, it was kind of nice. You know, it's, it's very dated. And, you know, I guess, you know, turning Japanese, using that for the trailer was a little rough. Um and, you know, some of the humor didn't age too well, but it has a, a, a magnificent cast. And Michael Keaton, of course, is in the lead. But the um, the reason why I have a, a personal connection to this is not uh, just because, you know, my family, you know, my dad was an auto worker. Um, well, my, my friend, one of my best friends growing up, Steve, uh, his mother worked for the General Motors, worked for General Motors too, and eventually she she was working at Lordstown in Ohio, but then she moved to Beaver Falls. They moved to Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, and she got transferred to the Pittsburgh plant. Well, there was a buzz going around that there was some filming going on for a Michael Keaton movie directed by Ron Howard in the Pittsburgh area. So we actually got to go and stand way, 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 way back and see Michael Keaton and um, Ron Howard and his uh, his dad Rance Howard was in the film. He was actually there was a. Has anybody seen the movie? Been a long while. I have no memory of it. I vaguely have a memory of it. Well, there's a scene where Rance Howard is basically giving a pep talk on a on a um, the, the, um, the what do you call it a bandstand kind of thing, and uh, you know that was so funny because we were there and there was this guy who the the one person we did make a little bit of contact with who was on the set was a guy in stilts dressed in an Uncle Sam costume, 
<laughs> and he was like walking the perimeter and, and saying hi to kids and stuff like that. So it was pretty cool. So I think I was, uh, you know, I'm assuming it was filming. Uh, I think it was the fall or the end of summer. So that would have meant that it was 1985 that we went. So I must have been 14. And then the movie came out in 86. Unless it was early filming in the spring. But I, I vaguely remember it being pretty dry. So that was my first experience being anywhere near a movie set. Um, and that was pretty cool, you know, seeing, I mean, Ron Howard, you know, one of, you know, one of my heroes growing up and Michael Keaton, little did I know he was going to be one of my heroes when he became, became Batman. Um, it was a pretty cool experience, but, uh, it's a really fun comedy. I, I highly recommend revisiting it. Uh, here's the trailer for it. Let's see if this rattle uh, shakes any cobwebs out of your guys, uh, uh, entertainment memory hole. Hey, Hunt, today is the big day. Give him hell, boy. Hey, I'll give it to him. We're counting on you. Hey, Mrs. Broniak, this face is on the case. Hunt Stevenson invited the Japanese. You know, my dad was over here with the army in, uh, I guess it was 1940. Hey, did you decorate this place yourself? To put his town back to work. Welcome to your first day with the San Motus. <laughs> now, Everything is on his shoulders. Let's do it and do it our way. I thought it handled great. And it's all in the hands of Ron Howard, the director of Splash and Cocoon. This is great. What could possibly go wrong? Good question. Let's go find out. We must be a team. In Japan, our goal is 0% defense. How'd you slip by? Everyone's thinking only of company. See, we have our own way of making cars. This is Looney Tunes. Looney Tunes? I've heard a lot of talk about how good the Japanese businessmen are. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't get it. I don't see it. I'm not impressed. You're fired. He's coming! I can't stand it anymore! Safety glass. You failed. They're closing down the factory and going back to Japan. I'm calling all the guys, and we're coming over to get you. Oh, I'm drunk yourself. At least take off your watch. Look, I would love another chance. I know we could do better. Can we do it? Can we do it? Can we do it? Paramount Pictures presents... I came to tell you you were great tonight. I was really proud of you. Michael Keaton. Whoa, yikes. Whoops. Kaboom. In a Ron Howard production. Is it just me or do you hate the way your shorts feel when they get wet? I actually kind of like it. Really? Gung ho. That's all, folks. Yes, that is. In that trailer, it is the worst audio quality I've found yet for a trailer. They did not preserve... <laughs> There's no well-preserved copy of a trailer. Uh, I found a Russian version of the trailer, too, <laughs> which was really odd. Um, but the, ca the cast is fantastic. Uh, Gede uh, uh, wa uh, Watanabe, I, I, I know I'm butchering his name, but he's been in a lot of stuff. You would recognize him. He's... Um, uh, let me, uh, let me open up. He, he did voiceover work for Mulan. Um, he was in, uh, let me see, 16 Candles, uh, the unfortunate character of Long Duck Dong in that movie. Um, he was in UHF as Cooney from 1989. Love that movie. Gremlins 2, The New Batch. 
uh, and all kinds. Uh, he was in uh, um, all kinds of other movies uh, and a lot of television stuff too. Again, does a lot of uh, voice work on stuff. But uh, the, the film also starred George Went Norm from Cheers, uh, John Turturro, a very young John Turturro, as uh, Willie, Mimi Rogers, and uh, Rick Overton. You guys know that dude, right? Uh, and uh, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Clint Howard, of course. He, he, Ron Howard's got to give Clint and his dad some some uh, some roles here. Uh, Rance Howard as the mayor. He was the one you heard in the trailer. They're taking the plant back. They're closing it down and moving it back to Japan. That that was the scene that I I saw being filmed. Uh, so and they did about a million takes too. Uh, but yeah, so it's it's a fun cast and uh, it, it got some pretty bad reviews. But I think it's uh, I think it's a worthwhile uh, watch and I think uh, uh, it's a great performance from Michael Keaton. And he pairs really well with the Gede Watanabe. Um, and again, I don't know if I pronounced that right, but, uh, um, you know, we mess things up here all the time. You sound close to what Adam's typing out, so. There you go. So, uh, but yeah, so uh, uh, that that is a highly recommended film for me. And again, it's kind of cool. I don't know, uh, you know, has anybody ever been kind of up close and personal uh, near a movie set? No. Not no. No. Yeah. So the the next best thing to that was the Avengers set in Cleveland that I, I got to um uh, roam around. I didn't really see them filming any kind of action, uh but uh I got to, you know, I, I go to either end of the street and look at all the fake rubble and everything that they had thrown all over. That was very convincing rubble, let me tell you. <laughs> I thought it looked like something got, really got messed up, and that's a negative from you, Miles. Then no, never been near a movie set. He had to get up and go. Oh, okay. No, um, <laughs> no problem. Uh, so yeah. Uh, uh, well, I'll tell you what. Let's go ahead and uh, we'll uh, we'll roll along to the next trailer. Uh, Multiplicity from 1996. This is where Michael Keaton plays not one, not two, but three. No, not. Three, but four versions of himself. Um, he's uh, he's a, a busy guy, and he needs more hands. You know how it is, Joe. You 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 feel like you could use an extra set of hands, so why not just go clone yourself, right? Uh, I've done it all the time. Sure, sure. You know, people are cloning, uh, cloning dogs and sheep and whatever. Now, why not just you know go ahead and clone yourself? Uh, Did it, it just this morning. So, uh, but when the clones start to get a mind of their own, that's, that becomes a problem. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, has anybody seen, have you guys seen Multiplicity before? Yes. Ring any bells, Joe? Mm, no. All right. Well, here's the trailer for 1996's Multiplicity starring Michael Keaton, our birthday boy. It's like work is first. And my family is a close second. I'm a, I'm a distant third, bringing up the rear. By a miracle of modern science... I just need a little time for myself. Doug Kinney is about to get the one thing he needs more of. Doug, your clone. 
himself. So, uh, what, uh, what do I feed it? Now, between the two of us, we're gonna get a lot of stuff done. We're gonna kick some ass. We're gonna be awesome. There are two Dugs to go around. I'll get the dishes, now drive the kids to school. Thanks. Two Dugs to share the load. When do you have time to do all this? I suggest we all do them every morning. Find out what he had for breakfast. But it's still not enough Dugs. I hate to ask you, honey, but could you pick up the kids? To get the job done. Two. Like to meet three. Hi. How are you? Are you nuts? I've been working since I was 12 years old. It's break time. It is. And Doug, I think it's that 12-year-old that's saying, Doug, how about a visit? You need, you need time for Doug. What a suck. No. With three people. Meeting start yet? Well, you're already in the meeting. Sharing the life of one man. Did you see me in the meeting? Differences are developing. What are you doing? I'm not going to smoke. Let's look what? Personalities are emerging. I fold once. Name. Tuck. Tuck. Fold. TTF. And no air is in there because what? Air is our enemy, isn't it? And their problems are beginning to multiply. Doug, I'd like you to meet four. Where did he come from? We made a copy from two. And you know how sometimes you make a copy of a copy, it's not quite as sharp as, well, the original. This summer... It's every Doug for himself. Jeez Louise, how many of you are there? Is he safe with that razor? We take the blade out. It's cute, I think. From the director of Groundhog Day. <laughs> Michael Keaton. Nobody has sex with my wife but me. Andy McDowell. Doug. When that woman wants something, Doug, there is no stopping her. Woman, she's loose forever. Multiplicity. Hey, uh, Rain Man, run back in there and floss yourself, buddy, all right? <laughs> all right, so party at Ground Zero. Gotta love that. Um, the uh, Okay, so so the, the, the concept of this is great. And, of course, I picked this movie to show off, even though it's a comedy, Michael Keaton's uh, acting chops because he develops four distinct personalities between Doug one, Doug's one through four, and uh, Doug one is kind of a, uh, kind of a punk slacker sort of, um, and you know he likes to smoke and drink and and of course Doug one spent a thousand dollars to quit smoking so he, he at one point he's yelling at the the cologne and. Um, and then Doug three gets made on his behest, um, uh, because he still is finding, he runs a construction company and, you know, uh, he, he's always shorthanded with, well, with spending time with his family, doing business calls, going golfing, all kinds of different stuff. So, uh, business meetings, I should say, not calls. But, um, the, uh, so, and of course, you know, the hilarity is going to ensue too, especially when the, uh, the clones decide to make one on their own. So they clone two and they end up with four and four is kind of a real special case, uh, who like shaves his tongue and, you know, is easily plied by bribing him with Coca-Cola and eats spaghetti like a savage and <laughs> so but it's really funny to see michael keaton play all these different versions of michael keaton and and the rest of the cast is just stellar too eugene levy is a very contentious uh a relationship with eugene levy who's a a, a a constantly late um concrete guy 
<laughs> and um, the uh, and a- Annie McDowell, charming as always, uh, is in this place. His wife, and uh, and of course, this is uh, directed by Egon himself, uh, Harold Ramis. So any fan of Ghostbusters ought to get a kick out of this one because you know it's. You know, kind of in the same vein of, of what they did with Ghostbusters, except the, instead of the horror, they went with the sci-fi bent on this. And um, it's, uh, uh, but it, it, it's, a, it's a really fun, uh, oh, and I guess it's based on a short story um, called Multiplicity, published in National Lampoon Magazine from 1993. Um, so that's kind of interesting right there, but... Um, but yeah, this, this, uh, movie, like I said, Michelle, it's always impressive when an actor can play, you know, a couple different characters, but let alone, you know, four, which is the distinct characters. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, uh, I remember the movie poster for this one. So yeah, with all the, the, the there were several, but there, the one that sticks out in my mind is them having him going on into infinity off the edge of the, the poster. Yeah, cool. yeah, it's, yeah, it's a fun one. And, of course, uh, a lot of confusion ensues, too, with his wife, played by Andy McDowell, who at some point wants to become romantic, and when Doug number one isn't around, well, a few things happen. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, she, she finds herself being attracted to the different Dougs for different reasons. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, so it's, it's kind of, um, very awkward in that way. Um, kind of sort of reminded me of the Watchmen, uh, to, I don't know if anybody remembers that one bedroom scene with Dr. Manhattan. That was kind of disturbing. Um, but yeah, so, but Eugene Levy is, was great in this. Uh, he, he plays, uh, he moved to LA, but he leaves his watch set to New York time. So he's he's like always late, <laughs> and uh, so so it's a but yeah and and of course Brian Doyle Murray, uh, Bill Murray's one uh, acting brother who uh, has been in a ton of different great stuff, uh, Scrooge, Ghostbusters two, Groundhog Day, um, but yeah this is a you know it's a great it's a great fun cast and um, you know it's it, uh, it's gotten. Uh, a decent score over Rotten Tomatoes, although I, I don't necessarily agree with Rotten Tomatoes very much. Um, but yeah, this this movie, I, I think it's uh, it's if you want a good laugh, Joe, this is one worth checking out. Okay, I always need a good laugh. Yeah, there's there's some you're gonna love four. So, oh, yeah. although they they the uh, I won't spoil too much because the 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 dupes actually do get names down the road too. But uh, yeah, there's there's some pretty funny stuff. But yeah, this is uh, um, I, I don't know. It, this was kind of a it, I, I re- remember this getting panned back in the day, and I think mm-hmm. I might have even made fun of it. But um, but this was like the year before he did like Jackie Brown, and then he did that animated Jack Frost uh, stuff. But you know, he consistently has been working. There's, you know, there's been a few few gaps here and there, but not many. And um, there's some pretty fun stuff with him coming up. But uh, but yeah, um, but yeah, I definitely would uh, check this out if I were you, Joe. Yeah, you know, it's funny. You're talking about him playing all these roles, and later on in the show, we're going to talk about Peter Sellers. Uh huh. 
who, who was remarkable at that, especially in, uh, especially in Doctor Strangelove. So that's interesting. Or, or, or what was the subtitle to, or how I stopped, how caring, I stopped caring and uh, started loving the bomb? How I stopped worrying and start loving, yeah, the bomb. Oh, okay, and, worrying, uh, worrying. Yeah, and um, yeah, and, and we're going to talk more uh, later in the show about the duplicitous roles he played in that film. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that's going to be fun. And uh, so yeah, th- 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 this is uh, um, always fun to draw the little parallels, right? Yes, and uh, yeah. and and I'll uh, uh, after the break we're going to be talking about another movie that a, a sim- that has a similar title to how Doctor Strangelove has a, a, a sub a, a title and a subtitle to it. So he was in a movie in 2014 that I want to talk about uh, that really really uh, if nobody here has seen it you're going to want to. Um, but I'll tell you what it is that time it is break time. So what I've done and Michelle you're going to love this. Um, I put together, uh, because Henry Thomas, his birthday is, uh, of course, everybody should remember Henry Thomas as Elliot from E.T. Uh, he is just a little bit younger than me, um, and his birthday uh, was yesterday. Actually shared the same birthday with my father. So, happy 50th birthday to Henry Thomas. Um, this, uh, this trailer break, Michelle, you're going to love it. Starts with E.T. Okay. Then we have Cloak and Dagger, which was the the crazy. Basically, it was it was trying to a movie trying to cash in on the video game craze. And this kid played this video game called Cloak and Dagger, but it turned out that it actually had some kind of secret codes in it. And of course, it, and Dabney Coleman co-stars. Of course, everybody remembers Dabney Coleman from Nine to Five and tons of other stuff. Um. Then we have a movie released in the United States called The Quest, but it was actually released in Australia as Frog Dreaming. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> in 1985, so we got ET from '82, Cloak and Dagger from '84, The Quest slash Frog Dreaming from '85. Uh, then we have a bit of a jump uh, to I believe nine. 19- 1989 or 90 we have uh, Psycho 4 the beginning where he plays a young um, uh, Norman Bates fun and uh, then uh, we end with 1993's Fire in the Sky the crazy alien abduction movie yeah that's a good one <laughs> yeah so I want I kind of want to see that Psycho 4 I guess it was a TV movie but it, it looks it looks kind of fun. It has Norman Bates calling into a talk show uh, in telling yes, his, that telling one. his backstory. So we we might have to watch that. <laughs> See if we can get anything good for for radio, you know. Um, but yeah, so uh, here we go. We're good. We've got our uh, uh, break coming up with uh, again Henry Thomas. It's very exciting. It's a nuts break, and oh, hey, speaking of getting nuts. Now you want to get nuts? Come on, let's get nuts. <laughs> In 1975, he directed Jaws. 
1978, he directed Close Encounters of the Third Kind. In 1981, he directed Raiders of the Lost Ark. And now, Steven Spielberg brings us E.T. the Extraterrestrial. We will witness the arrival, the search, the desertion, the fear, the discovery, the friendship, I'm keeping him. The secret. The love. The warning. The signal. The mystery. The danger. The intrusion. The wonderment. The enchantment. The hope, the connection, has been made. Universal Pictures presents Steven Spielberg's E.T. The Extraterrestrial. His game is make-believe. Their game is murder, spying, and sabotage. This is starting to get good. What? Just like cloak and dagger. Fire! Now any move could be his last. Trying to kill us. Come on, this is cloak and dagger. For real, it's what you always wanted. Cloak and dagger. Now playing at a theater near you, consult your local listing. Henry Thomas is back as Cody Walpole. There's no brakes! He made it! There's no brakes! Oh, no! Cody is an adventurer about to discover the secret of frog dreaming. Gaza, what do you know about a pond five miles east of Devil's Knob? I want you to promise me you'll stay away from that pond. Do you believe in monsters? Son, for 20 years, I was married to one. First you dance with the devil. Then you find out about Donkey. Cody, just hang on. This is going too far. That thing could be a thousand feet deep if there's a bottom at all. I reckon I got about three minutes worth of air down there. Thomas from E.T. is Cody Walpole, whose search for adventure takes you to the depths of a legend, the legend of frog dreaming. In 1960, Alfred Hitchcock created a film that is perhaps the most terrifying thriller of all time, Psycho. Answers to the questions audiences have been asking for over 30 years. 
Psycho 4, The Beginning. This is Fran Ambrose on KTK, Talk of the Town. I call because the focus of your show tonight is what makes boys kill their mothers. Are you saying you killed your mother? I killed some other women, too. You want to tell us about your mother, uh, how she drove you to become what you became? She'd be sweet one moment, and then she'd suddenly turn mean. Don't you have any respect for the dead? How did it all start? What are you doing here? We're going to wake up your mother. Kill her. I can't, no. Then I'll do it for you. What makes Norman Bates kill? Look at yourself, boy. Ha, girl. Yes, girl. Oh. Mama's little girl. No, girl. How'd you kill your mother? Slowly. this be the end of Norman Bates? Oh, I've killed before. And now I'm going to have to do it again. Or is it only the beginning? Psycho 4, the beginning. Anthony Perkins stars with Olivia Hussey, CCH Pounder, and Henry Thomas as young Norman Bates. Psycho 4, the beginning on videocassette. does it think? What makes it move? Why does it breathe? Questions anyone would ask about a man if they'd never seen one before. So for five days, a man was borrowed. Travis Walton and five other witnesses told was so unbelievable, so unimaginable, that it has become the most famous case of UFO abduction ever reported. I think I killed somebody. I know I killed somebody. Ah, get out of here, Tom Hanks. We're not looking for your acting chops right now. Uh, so welcome back. I uh, hope everybody enjoyed the Henry Thomas uh, trailer break. Happy 50th birthday. I always felt like I could have been buddies with him. You know. Uh, I, I just uh, loved the movie E.T. when I was a kid. And I loved Cloak and Dagger uh, when it came out. And then kind of lost track of him. You know, so it feel like, feels like I'm reconnecting with that that buddy I could have had, right? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so uh, fun stuff in there. You know, of course, uh, ET. Uh, you you have a, a, a Joe. Welcome back, uh, uh, Bob Weatherwax related story to ET, right? Yeah, Bob's friend uh, uh, moved from California to New Jersey recently, and uh, he he uh, yeah he worked on that film. 
he was the dog trainer there. Richard Calkins, if you look up IMDb. Very uh, cool. You'll see Richard there. And he is currently training Sharky to use an AR-15. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> uh, there you uh, go. He, is, he, is, he is doing training with Sharky. He has him doing remarkable things. He has Sharky crawling uh, on the ground, digging, and oh, all the stuff he does now. Oh, nice. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating to watch dog trainers who know what they're doing. Did, did has he yeah. help, helped him hone his knife skills? <laughs> yes, yes, he can do surgery actually now. So, yeah, he's very, very good. But yeah, Richard Hawkins, check him out. Um, yeah, he he's living in Jersey now and he's training dogs in the area. So uh, yeah, yeah, and he did the dog in ET. Very and cool, very cool. And he also chef- worked on oh. Back to the Future. Oh, okay. When Bob when Bob had to leave a few days. Yeah. And uh, Michelle, yeah, so uh, there was fun stuff in there. You know, I, I, I think he actually, um, Henry Thomas ma- made a, a quite a good uh, young uh, Anthony Perkins as uh, um, uh, Norman Bates. I, I think that was a good good choice uh, for him as a younger man. Yes, yes, it, it, it was a very good choice. Uh, I, I, I seem to remember I enjoyed his, his part playing him. Um, and I really love the, the, the artistry of bookending uh, that trailer block with two different types of aliens. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, we've got the friendly, uh, you know, turn on your heart light, and then uh, the other ones whip out your anal probe. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> uh, and, oh, and Michelle, uh, what did you think? Uh, last we, we, we took the week off last week, so we uh, got to revisit a classic show, our Kolchak special. <laughs> Oh yes. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I forgot about uh, that. that yeah, it was fun to listen to because we were talking about like all the different animal noises and Richard Keel and you know uh, it, it was it was really cool. And uh, um, but yeah, and and Miles, of course, you had the you got to do the uh, the succubus one, uh, Filander uh, Miles special interest. Um, but that was that was a fun show to revisit. Oh yeah. So, um, but yeah. So uh, you know, I uh, again, you know, the, the good. I, I didn't even think of that, Michelle, about bookending that with two different kinds of aliens. Oh, I thought you did that on purpose. No, <laughs> went no, down beautifully. I, I just kind of picked things that I thought went well together. But yeah, that's uh, you know, uh, that's pretty cool. No mention of Henry Thomas or uh, or lines from him in the trailer, but. It was, you know, uh, it was still a fun trailer. It didn't even mention the title of the movie, I don't think. Fire in the Sky. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, all right. So, well, let's go ahead and get back into this. Um, this, uh, it, it, I've got one last trailer for you. And if you've not seen this, and again, a little parallel to what Miles is going to be talking about later. Um, a movie that has a long subtitle. This is called Birdman. Or the unexpected virtue of ignorance from 2014. Now, this is kind of this movie is kind of a strange meta statement about Michael Keaton's actual career as Batman, but it wasn't written necessarily for him, and it's it's got a just a an absolutely uh, excellent cast with you know led by Michael Keaton, 
and uh, Edward Norton, uh, who I'm not necessarily the biggest, um, uh, not Edward Norton, is, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, hang on one second. He was the guy that was in the first Hulk movie. Um, the uh, Edward, was it? Yeah, it is Edward Norton. I was thinking I was mixing up with Edward Furlong. Edward Norton, yeah. Edward Norton, Zach Galifianakis, uh, Amy Ryan, Emma Stone, um, Naomi Watts. Just an absolute great cast. And so basically what this film is about is about a guy who used to star in superhero movies, like Michael Keaton did. And he was trying to legitimize his career as an actor by like doing it all and trying to do... The you know direct and write and star in this massive stage play, and it just starts to kind of eat away at his self worth and his sanity. And uh, for example, the character of Birdman follows him around on the street and talks to him. Uh, and this is a Birdman that it's not related to the the Harvey Birdman or anything like that. It's a completely different thing. Um, but. The costume definitely evokes some of those early superhero costumes. Very bulky, latex kind of stuff. Um, and uh, again, I think it's kind of a, a, an odd meta-statement on his career. And this film won a lot of awards. Um, uh, let me see if I can find the awards. Um, but it, it's just absolutely uh, uh, gorgeous. Um, uh, it, it, so, uh, it won four Academy Awards, uh, on, on the 87th Academy Awards, best picture, best, uh, director, best original screenplay and best cinematography. Uh, Keaton was nominated for best actor. Um, and Edward Norton and Emma Stone were nominated for best supporting, uh, acting credits. And, uh, they also received nominations for sound editing and sound mixing. And the, the sound design in this is absolutely great. And uh, this earned Michael Keaton his first Golden Globe Award for Best Actor in a Motion Picture. And uh, and that was at the 72nd Golden Globes Award. Golden Globes Awards. Golden Globe Awards? <laughs> I don't know what I'm... But it should be pluralizing there. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so check out the trailer. It's, it's really fun. And, uh, you know, I can't recommend this movie enough. I, I was really blown away with it. And, uh, again, visually stunning. Great story. And again, it, it has this kind of meta context to where it might actually be kind of talking about Michael Keaton's career trajectory, although he's not nearly as batshit crazy as Birdman or birdshit crazy as Batman. Yeah. Can I ask a question? Is there, yeah. is there any coincidence that uh, Birdman looks like Harvey Birdman? Um, the... Uh, uh, I thought I didn't think it necessarily looked that much like him. The color scheme was a lot different. Um, yeah, but it, the, the 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 mask. But then again, the mask of any type of bird superhero is gonna look like. Yeah. That. Just, to me, it's just kind of funny, though. You know, you have the two. So. Yeah, hey, I think they they you know um, I have no answer for that except yeah. I mean, you're gonna put a beak on a costume. It's gonna look a lot like another costume with a beak. So. <laughs> Um, but, uh, but they definitely didn't use yellow in the costume. So that, that's good. Right. Uh, which is a good thing. <laughs> so anyway, uh, but yeah, check this out. Uh, I think you'll it really enjoy, uh, what you hear. And I, I, I can't recommend this film enough. This is for 
every kind of movie lover out there. This is for, you know, superhero, sci-fi, psychological kind of stuff, comedy. It has a lot of great, you know, uh, elements. And you get to see Michael Keaton running around uh, New York City in his tidy whities as well. So, there you go. How did we end up here? This place is horrible. Smells like balls. We had it all. You were a movie star, remember? Who was this guy? He used to be Birdman. I like that poster. You wrote this adaptation? I did, yeah. And you're directing and starring in your adaptation. That's yeah. ambitious. Are you afraid people will say you're doing this play to battle the impression that you're a washed-up comic strip character? Absolutely not. That's why 20 years ago I said no to Birdman 4. Hold the mask off! You do hold the mask off! Now you're about to destroy what's left of your career. We should have done that reality show they offered us. Shut up. You know I'm right. You're so nice! Hey, what's up? Why don't you try to rest a little bit? Face it, Dad. You're doing this because you're scared to death, like the rest of us, that you don't matter. And you know what? You're right. You don't. Baby, can you understand me now? Sometimes I get a little mad. Don't you know no one alive can always be an angel? When things go wrong, I seem to go bad. Listen to me. I'm just a you are the original man. Let's make a comeback. That's what I'm talking about. You're a bird man. You are a god. Hey, is this for real or are you shooting a film? A film! You people are full of shit. Music. He's a Hollywood clown in a Lyco bird suit. Yes, he is. But he's going out on that stage and risking everything. This is about being respected and validated, remember? That's what you told me. That's how you got me into this shit. I got a chance to do something right. I got to take it. Let's go back one more time and show them what we're capable of. Burn it! There you go, you motherfucker. Dude, you fucking rock! There you go. <laughs> Hope it's piqued some interest there. Uh, wow. Yeah. Especially the Eric Burden uh, cover there. Oh, yeah. That was fun, wasn't it? So yeah. I'm not sure who did that one. Um, but uh, I don't know how to... I'm going to butcher this guy's name, but the director is uh, Alejandro uh, Gonzalez... Um, and his last name looks like Inaritu. I don't know how to say it, but, uh, he also, uh, directed that movie, The Revenant, the following year, uh, with Leonardo DiCaprio. So if anybody's seen The Revenant and you want to see a movie done by the same director, uh, you can check it out. He also did, um, uh, let me see, um... There was 21 Grams was a movie that he also did, too, uh, which I think is about drugs, everyone, and Babel, uh, which I've not seen, but I heard is kind of weird. Um, 
so yeah, the, the, this is a really, really cool movie. I, I highly recommend it. It's, again, one of Michael Keaton's finest performances. Uh, and again, you want to see him running around Times Square in his tidy whities and nothing else. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. So, <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah. Um, now, uh, uh, but Michelle, you've not seen this one, right? Correct. I have not. I thought okay. it was a little too heavy on the drama, but I, I might look into it. It has a lot of comedic moments. It, it's not too... If, if I, I would say for fans, any fans of Terry Gilliam movies would probably enjoy this. That's about the level because it's got a little bit of everything in it, you know? So, and uh, it definitely got a lot of laughs. Uh, but it, yeah, Edward Norton, though, ugh, I hate his character in this, but he's he's meant to be hated. And, uh, and, uh, uh, so I'm assuming Miles hasn't seen it as well. And, uh, no. and Joe, you'll probably, uh, you're going to put this on your watch list. <laughs> I have a long watch list now. You do. You do. <laughs> but yes, but we, we are always looking for something to watch. So yeah, it's good to have. There you go. There you go. So, uh, I have a couple other fun things I want to play before, uh, um, we, uh, get to the top of the hour. Um, this was a funny story that Michael Keaton uh, related to Jimmy Fallon in 2015. Oddly enough, before he was in, I think even before he was cast in Spider-Man Homecoming, um, this was, um, uh, 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 Michael Keaton talking to Jimmy Fallon about going in to get his cell phone repaired, but the guy seemed to be a little distracted, and it's just kind of a funny little story. And it's very, very Michael Keaton. Uh, I was asking you backstage. We were talking. I go because you know, obviously, we all love you from all your movies and uh, you know, the Beetlejuice. I go Batman, and then I go. Do, do anyone ever? Does anyone ever confuse you for a different superhero, like Spider-Man or something like that? And I'm in. I'm in. Uh, you know those stores that fix your. Uh, you break it, we fix it. Is that what it is? You break oh, yeah. It? Yeah. They, I, iPhone or something like that? iPhone, you, and my glass had shattered, and I was just the other time, and I was in, you go into the store, and I had to get it fixed, and I'm there, and on the wall, on the screen, is uh, a television, a screen, flat screen, and, and Spider-Man was playing. Mm -hmm. And the guy's kind of paying attention to me, but really locked in, <laughs> really, <laughs> mostly locked into watching Spider-Man. Yeah, And I'm course. going, I don't know how it broke, it's in the corner. And he's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know, hold on a second. <laughs> I know those guys, yeah, they don't care that you're at the no. store that it's broken. They're, they just like, they're watching Spider-Man. Spider yeah, yeah, and it I don't know which one it was. I don't know which one it was. Yeah, but sure. uh, there's a scene, and I'm going, and I, now I'm thinking, oh, hey, i got to get out of here. He's going to put two and two together, see me, and it's going to be a thing. Never happened. Did not recognize me at all. <laughs> and he's totally locked into... Right. Yeah, so great. what's happening on the screen is the scene. Now I go, well, I'm curious. Now I want to watch him watch the movie. So I'm really watching him, seeing his reaction movie. And in the scene, which I didn't know him, Peter Parker, right? That's his name? Peter yes, Parker. Absolutely. Peter Parker is having a very emotional scene with my pal, Emma Stone. Yeah. Their, their thing, and he cries. Yeah. Break, he starts to cry. Wow. Peter Parker. Sure. Right. So Spider I'm watching, Man, yeah. yeah. I'm saying, see, you see where I'm headed. Yeah. So I go, I'm watching, I'm seeing what this guy's reaction is. So I say to him, I go, uh, the Spider-Man. And the guy goes, yeah. He said, what should I go? Is he crying? <laughs> the guy goes, yeah. And I just wait a little bit. You're going to bleep this out. And I go, <laughs> And I wait. <laughs> and 
it's, and it's you. <laughs> and I wait, and he kind of does this. He kind of like looks at me, he's just like locked in, and I go, uh, Batman never cry. <laughs> <laughs> so I wonder if he got it then. When <laughs> <laughs> he's watching Spider-Man on a TV while Batman is standing right in front of him with a cell phone. <laughs> That's hilarious. So, yeah, I saw that and just, just loved it. So, so yeah, so oddly enough, you know, of course, he mentioned Emma Stone. Uh, so that was obviously one of the Andrew Garfield movies that he was talking about because she played, uh, oh, gosh, what's her Gwen Stacy in those movies. And uh, and he had just worked with her on Birdman. So, you know, he said, there, there was my pal Emma. Um, and uh, so, what you know, and I guess not... I guess, ironically, then, he ends up being in a Spider-Man movie as the Vulture in Spider-Man Homecoming. And one of the finest moments of acting from any of the, the more modern superhero films has to be the three-minute car ride and dad speech with uh, Michael, Michael Keaton's character Adrian Toomes, a.k.a. the Vulture, with his daughter in the back seat and Peter Parker in the back seat driving them to prom. And Michael Keaton's vulture character is not stupid. He thinks there's no. something very familiar about Peter Parker after having a run-in with a certain Spider-Man. And this, and Joe, I, I know you probably haven't seen this movie, but this is going to be a real treat for you because this is so intense. <laughs> <laughs> this is what these movies are about for me. And Miles, are you are you familiar with what I'm talking about? Because I believe you saw this one, right? Yeah. The the yes the yes. Yeah. So, uh, but this is this is intense. So here's here's a good here's a three minute treat for everybody, and then I got one last clip. I've seen you around, right, man? I mean, I mean, somewhere we've uh, have we ever. Because of even the voice. Huh? Um, he does academic to Kathleen with me. Oh. Uh. And he's at my party. Uh. There's a great party. Really great. Yeah. Beautiful house. A lot of windows. You were there for like two seconds. That was... I was there longer than two seconds. You disappeared. No. No, I did not disappear. Yes, you did. You disappeared like you always do. Like you did in DC too. Terrible what happened down there in DC, though. Were you scared? I bet you were glad when your old pal Spider Man showed up in the elevator, though. Yeah, well, I, I, I actually didn't go up. I, I saw it off on the ground. Very lucky that he was there that day. Good old Spider Man. Dad, light. Here we are. End of the line. Thanks, Dad. You head in there, gumdrop. I'm gonna give Peter the, uh, the dad talk. Don't let him intimidate you. Love you. Love you, Gumdrop. Have a safe flight. 
so pretty. Does she know? Know what? So she does good, close to the vest. I admire that. I've got a few secrets of my own. Of all the reasons I didn't want my daughter to date. Peter, nothing is more important than family. You saved my daughter's life, and I could never forget something like that, so I'm gonna give you one chance. Are you ready? You walk through those doors, you forget any of this happened, and don't you ever, ever interfere with my business again. Because if you do, I'll kill you and everybody you love. I'll kill you dead. That's what I'll do to protect my family, Pete. You understand? Hey. You just saved your life. Nobody say. Thank you. You're welcome. Now, you go on in there. You show my daughter a good time. Okay? Just not too good. I'll kill you dead. <laughs> There's one reason I never went on a prom. Yeah. <laughs> that's a pretty intense dad speech. Yeah, that is. Yeah, that's met some bad dads, but uh, that would be a bad one. <laughs> I remember seeing that in the theater and I was like, oh my God. I you know, and I, I really had concerns about them making the vulture a viable character, but picking Michael Keaton and rewriting his backstory as being somebody who, you know, scavenged like a much like a vulture would, uh, alien technology and, and reselling it on the streets to uh, super criminals. Um, you know, as it, it, realistic as you know as they could make that him for a superhero movie, I think they did quite good. Other than the old, you know, uh, crazy, you know, scrawny, beak nose, bald guy flying around with you know cloth feathers. Uh, you know, uh, turning his the, the Chitari technology from the first Avengers movie into uh, weaponized wings makes a lot much uh, lot makes a lot more sense. So, uh, but yeah, and uh, and Michael Keaton, wow, was he the right role for for that? And uh, he's also going to be appearing in the Mobius movie. Uh, and they're also working on a Sinister Six film as well uh, that, that, that they've been trying to get off the ground forever. And honest to God, Michael Keaton is just the guy to lead that. He could be the Robert Downey Jr. of the uh, evil version of the Spider-Verse. So I think that would be cool. Um, and and But just so everybody knows, Michael Keaton is not done with Batman the uh, there is a Flash movie coming out, I believe, next year with Ezra Klein in the role, repri reprising the role that he began in Justice League. Uh, uh, Ezra Klein or Ezra Miller? Oh my God, I'm ge I'm getting so terrible at this after my fiftieth birthday. Um, uh, let me see uh, what comes up. Um, Ezra Miller, Ezra Miller, not Ezra Klein. Uh, yeah, so uh, but it's the 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 new Flash movie is going to feature a storyline very similar to the comic book Flashpoint, 
which um, it, it, but they found their Batman for this movie, and it is an older Batman, and it will be Michael Keaton, which is very exciting. That is cool. And um, and, and you know, this is going to be a story about the multiverse. Obviously, the DC and Marvel uh, cinematic universes are both getting in to you know telling multiversal stories, and you know what. Makes it a lot easier to fix continuity when you've got a multiverse. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but here's Michael Keaton um, on Jimmy Fallon just uh, like three weeks ago talking about what it's like putting the bat suit back on. You know what I wanted to ask you, though? But I want to talk about this new Flash coming out where yeah. you're going to yeah. get back as Batman. Yeah. And, and yeah. You're, I just want yeah. to know, what does it feel like to be back in the suit and wear the suit again. Like riding a bike. Yeah. <laughs> hey, that's... Hey, man, here's the thing I learned. You don't... I was so stupid to think that, you know, when I was first doing it, I got in really good shape, which you have to get into shape, you know, because you just have to carry the thing around. And I don't know why I didn't think of this first time. It's easier to be really skinny and not work out yeah. because you have more room to work around. The first time I was doing it, the first one, I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready, I'm working on a bag, and I'm doing all this stuff. And uh, Jack Nicholson walks by, who's playing the, the, the Joker, and he looks at me and he goes, what are you doing? And I go, ah, you know, get working out. And he goes, what for? <laughs> <laughs> and I went, I stopped sweating, and I went, I don't know, and he just walked away. <laughs> And I thought, he's right. He's completely it's right. totally right, because you got a suit. What do I need to do? The suit <laughs> exactly. makes me look the good. The suit makes you look jacked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah. There you go. So, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that uh, was uh, pretty pretty awesome to hear him, you know, talk about getting, you know, it's just like riding a bike. He's back. So, that's pretty neat. But uh, that's all the time I have for my segment. I've run over a little bit. Um, but when, uh, yes, I and apologize to Adam. Uh, I thought it'd be too predictable for me to talk about Beetlejuice. Because, uh, and after all, we did just talk about Tim Burton the other day, so I didn't want to, you know, I, I figured I'd let talk about some newer things that Keaton did and some underrated stuff that he's done. Um, you know, try and get people to see some films maybe they wouldn't otherwise go go watch. So there you go. There's your, there's your watch list, everybody. Gung-ho from 86, Multiplicity from 96, and Birdman, or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance from 2014. Uh, check them out. All great Michael Keaton classics. We'll be right back with lots more right after this. It's going to be a good night. It came from Cleveland, Ohio. A land of strange rituals. The savage horrors of fearsome mutated beasts. Back from the dead. Kept alive by experimental science. Science runs amok when human beings tamper with unknown forces. Cut the power! Now at last, the real shocking story can be told. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. A nightmare combination of shock and terror. And you're invited. A foolish unto Something evil. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. <laughs> Not recommended for impressionable children. You sure it should be fine? I'm fine. I think we're all fine. <laughs>
<laughs> Welcome back to the show. Uh, uh, well, Michelle, uh, yeah, so we've, uh, I got through my first hour there. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so. and, and I remember George Carlin had a bit about fine. He didn't like that word. It was not one of the words he did not like. <laughs> yeah, yes, I, I, remember I remember that, that as well. And uh, Miles, welcome back to you as well, sir. Yes, yes, hello. And uh, Joe, yeah, we, we got a little teaser there for who we're going to be talking about next. Speaking of actors in multiple roles. Yes, yes. Peter Sellers uh, touted to be the Charlie Chaplin of his time. Yes. Yeah, another guy who died way too young, really, didn't he? Yes, uh, sort of was his fault, too. We'll get into that. Well, okay, there we go. And, uh, but yeah, so, all right, so Peter Sellers, where do you want to begin? What do you got for us? Oh, okay, well, if we're going to do, start here, um, let's start with a little review of his life. You know, he was born on September 8th, so that's why we're doing this this week, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was born in, uh, South Sea, the suburb of Portsmouth in England, uh, and although his christened name is Richard Henry Sellers, uh, his parents called him Peter for a weird reason, because he had an elder brother who was stillborn. And so he was the only child of the family. So they called him after the stillborn brother. Mm. Oh, so, that is weird. Yeah, kind of kind of set the tone for, for Peter Sellers' life, because uh, it wasn't easy. Uh, let's see, when he was two weeks old, uh, he made his debut on stage. Is that so? Uh, huh? Is that so? Yes, uh, he was carried on stage by one Dick Henderson, uh, the headline act at the King's Theater in South Sea, uh, and the crowd sang for He's a Jolly Good Fellow when they brought him out and uh, caused him to start screaming. Oh, boy. Yes, a little personal note here. I made my debut on the stage when I was six months old, and I did not cry. And uh, I actually have a picture of that uh, right here. And Aww. there I am. Yes, there I am. That's me. I play Jesus. You know yes. what, Joe? We have something what? in common. We do. Uh, my mother volunteered me at six months old to play Jesus as well in a nativity thing at a local theater. How did you do? Uh, I don't... I got a big contract after that. I don't what think did... I cried. I, I, I don't know. I'd have to ask her. Uh, it's, it, you know, so it's, um, it's one of those... Well, not to get... Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I don't know. I just, I have no I I, I got to talk to her about it again because... It's one of those things that, you know, I haven't talked to her about in forever. Yeah, well, you know, it was like one of those things. They said I slept through the whole thing, which you can see I was sleeping there. But uh, uh, not to get too far into the weeds here. The person just to my, well, just on the right side that was playing Mary there. Yeah. was my Is my cousin. And up her sleeve, she had a, a bottle just in case I woke up, <laughs> which she never used. <laughs> Anyway, let's get back to Peter Sellers. Uh, so he was, he, yeah, he, he had a, a young debut. Um, so the first clip we're going to talk about is Dr. Strangelove, of course, because 
probably one of my favorite movies because I grew up during the the uh, terror of the atomic bomb. Mm-hmm. We used to do that, you know, duck and cover shit. So oh, yeah. uh, Stanley Kubrick uh, cast, who knows, Peter Sellers in Dr. Strangelove. But what a cast. George C. Scott, Sterling Hayden, Keenan Wynn, Slim Pickens. Oh, yeah. What a cast. Uh, and um, one of the few directors he really loved was was uh, Stanley Kubrick. Sad to say, he got did not get along with most of his actor friends or his directors. <laughs> he fired all of them. So oh, wow. um, he asked, uh, you, you know, uh, Kubrick asked Sellers to play three roles. He'll play President Merkin Muffley. <laughs> Merkin Muffley. Boy, oh boy. <laughs> he played Dr. Strangelove. And uh, the one I didn't like, the one I liked the least was Group Captain Lionel Mandrake of the Royal Air Force. Yeah. Uh, now, he was especially anxious. They wanted him also to play the uh, Slim Pickens role. But he was afraid he couldn't do that southern accent, that Texas accent. Well. And on the first day of shooting, uh, he sprained his ankle, leaving a restaurant. So he couldn't do the cockpit scenes anymore. So they did get, they recast it as Slim Pickens, who, as you know, was classic in that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. I just saw Slim Pickens on an episode of Gunsmoke the other day. There you go. Yeah, great character actor. And wow, that scene of him writing that bomb down <laughs> that's, that's one classic but this the the clip i picked which we'll play right now is uh one of the funniest scenes is a phone conversation with president muffley calling his russian counterpart to tell him uh good news and bad news uh, the bad news is there are nuclear bombs from us on our way to bomb you yeah <laughs> This is a great clip, so I'm glad it you hit this one. Here. Hello? Uh, hello, Di- hello, Dimitri. Listen, I-, I can't hear too well. Do you suppose you could turn the music down just a little? Oh, that's much better. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then... Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, and and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. (laughs) Now then, Dimitri, you know how we've always talked about the possibility of something going wrong with the bomb. The bomb, Dimitri. The hydrogen bomb. Well, now, what happened is um, one of our base commanders, he had a sort of, well, he went a little funny in the head. You know, just a little funny. And uh, he went and did a silly thing. Well, I'll tell you what he did. He ordered his planes to attack your country. Uh, Well, let me finish, Dimitri. Let me finish, Dimitri. Well, listen, how do you think I feel about it? Can you imagine how I feel about it, Dimitri? 
Why do you think I'm calling you? Just to say hello? Of course I like to speak to you. Of course I like to say hello. Not now, but any time, Dimitri. I'm just calling up to tell you something terrible has happened. It's a friendly call. Of course it's a friendly call. Listen, if it wasn't friendly, you probably wouldn't have even got it. They will not reach their targets for at least another hour. I am, I am positive, Dimitri. Listen, I've been all over this with your ambassador. It is not a trick. Well, I'll tell you. We'd like to give your air staff a complete rundown on the targets, the flight plans, and the defensive systems of the planes. Yes, I mean, if we're unable to recall the planes, then I'd say that, uh, well, uh, we're just gonna have to help you destroy them, Dimitri. I know they're our boys. All right, well, listen, now who should we call? Who should we call, Dimitri? The what the people you sorry you faded away there the people's central air defense headquarters where is that dimitri in omsk right yes oh you're calling first will you uh-huh listen do you happen to have the phone number on you dimitri what i see just ask for omsk information I'm sorry too, Dimitri. I'm very sorry. All right, you're sorrier than I am, but I am sorry as well. I am as sorry as you are, Dimitri. Don't say that you're more sorry than I am because I'm capable of being just as sorry as you are. So we're both <laughs> sorry, all right? All right. Oh, sorry, I turned my volume up way too loud. I just had to get that laugh in. <laughs> <laughs> that is one of the classic movie scenes oh, of all time. God, that's so good. Talk about understated. Yeah, um, yeah. That, that, that you know, we're stuff. about to kill you and wipe your country out. Yeah. You don't think I'm upset? Wow. Um, that is funny. <laughs> it is. Good choice. Well, um, yeah, uh, after uh, Peter Sellers' father died... Um, he decides to leave England and is approached by a director named, uh, you might know this one, Blake Edwards. Uh, I think I might have maybe heard of him before. <laughs> okay. And, uh, of course, Peter Ustinov had recently backed out of the Pink Panther uh, movies. Oh, okay. Uh, and he, he off, Blake Edwards offered the, the uh, Inspector Clouseau role to uh, Peter Sellers. Uh, which uh, Blake Edwards later recalled saying that he was desperately unhappy happy and ready to kill, but as fate would have it, I got Mr. Sellers instead of Mr. Ustinov. Thank God. Yeah. And we did, and, uh, we did a show about yeah. Peter Ustinov. Uh, uh, Michelle, didn't you have Peter Ustinov uh, a couple months back? Yeah, we covered some of the Agatha Christie movies that That's he was right. in, playing Hercule Poirot. There you go. But go right. ahead, Joe. And uh, Sellers' performance is regarded as being on par with Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton um, by his biographer. And I got to tell you, when you think about it, what, what they did in silent films as opposed to what he did in with these scripts is unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, 
this Clouseau character in the script was not what Sellers liked. So he created the personality, devised the costumes, the accent, the makeup, the mustache, the trench coat, the whole thing. So that's all of his, uh, his making. Um, and I thought, well, let's start with uh, an earlier, let's see, the earlier version. The Return of the Pink Panther is one clip I had. The monkey. Uh, yes. I don't know. Do you have the monkey one? I do. I have uh, that, and then I have the room and the dog one, and then I'll just have to play the other one. Oh, okay. Them. So now this this scene is where in is in from Return of the Pink Panther, nineteen seventy five, where um, he's thrown off he's thrown off the uh, homicide force and put back on the street as a beat cop. Yes. And he runs into a panhandler who sings a guitar and has a little monkey with a cup. Oh, he has an accordion. Is, as a matter of fact. Huh. He has an accordion. Right, accordion. So. Um, okay. I'm sorry, finish. Okay, nothing. Uh, so this is the uh, monkey scene. Monkey. All right, here we go. You have a license, monsieur? City Ordinance 47B prohibits the playing of any musical instrument in a public place for the purpose of commercial enterprise without a license. I don't understand. It is against the law for you to play your musical instrument. The law? What? You say it's against the law? Yes, unless you have a proper license. Uh, what kind of license? A license that permits the playing of any musical instrument in a public place for the purpose of commercial enterprise. Commercial enterprise? Yes. You play that thing and people give you the money. People give the monkey the money. It is a sign. Oh, and not at all, monsieur. I am a musician and the monkey is a businessman. He doesn't tell me <laughs> what to play and I don't tell him what to do with his money. Monsieur, don't try to be funny <laughs> with me. He is your monkey, therefore it is your money. He lives with me, but he is not my monkey. One day I came home and I found him sitting in the living room. I let him stay, but he pays for his own room and board. Then the monkey is breaking the law. Uh, but he doesn't uh, play any musical instrument. City Ordinance 132R prohibits the begging. How do you know so much about uh, city ordinances? What sort of stupid question is that? Are you blind? Yes. <laughs> oh, I see. Yes, yes. Yes, of course. Well, you happen to be talking to a police officer. And because I expect to be transferred back to the detective division at any moment, <clears throat> I will let you off this time with just a warning. Uh, thank you, Monsieur Argent. But you must get yourself a proper license. Uh, first thing tomorrow. Try to do something about your filthy monkey. <laughs> Idiot! How was I to know he was the bank manager? How were you to know the bank was being robbed? That is correct. What is correct? I did not know the bank was being robbed because I was engaged in my sworn duty as a police officer. You didn't even arrest the old beggar. There was some question as to whether the beggar or his minky was breaking the law. Minky? What? You said minky. That is correct, yes. Chimpanzee minky. 
So I left them both <laughs> off with a warning. <laughs> the beggar was the lookout man for the gang. That is impossible. Why? He was blind. How can a blind man be a lookout? How can an idiot be a policeman? Answer me that! Yeah, good question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, oh, yes. That is quality stuff. That, that was. And, um, well, uh, in between these, these, uh, these films, um, uh, in early 1964, uh, Sellers meets Britt Eklund, a Swedish actress. Uh, I had a crush on her back in the day. Okay, um, I can understand. She was in London, huh? I can understand. She was in London, and uh, ten days after they met, they get married. Wow. But on the night of April 5th of 64, he was having sex with his wife, Britt Eklund, and he decided to inhale uh, what they call poppers. Oh, boy. Mild nitrates. It's a sexual stimulant to... And he was in search for the ultimate orgasm. Oh, wow. And uh, what he got was the ultimate heart attack, which he had a series of eight of them in the course of three hours. Oh, my God. Yes. Which uh, he was filming another movie called Kiss Me Stupid. uh, And he had to be replaced by Ray Walston, of all people. Um, And... uh, his director was unimpressed and unsympathetic about the heart attacks. And he said, you have to have a heart before you can have an attack. Oh, wow. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So that sort of set the tone for the rest of his life because he was sort of really screwed up because he was, he was sick for the, for the remaining part of his, his, his life, uh, his heart. And it affected his personality. Uh, He was very hard to get along with was really his you know his his career took a, a turn there um but uh before it did he did do the pink uh he he did have a turning point rather in his career uh later on in the late 60s he was going downhill but in 1974 uh he once again teams up with Blake Edwards uh to make the return of the pink panther with uh, Michelle, I think you'd like this, alongside Christopher Plummer. Oh, yeah. And Herbert Lam, who was great as his chief. <laughs> I mean, they were great together. Uh, you heard him in, this last, in the last clip. And I picked another clip from uh, The Pink Panther Strikes Again, 1976, uh, when he's trying to check into a motel, a hotel. And he has a trouble with his language, and... Uh, some interpretations of what the guy said. Uh, it's the dog clip. Here you go. Guten Tag. Good day. My name is Professor Guy Gadbois, medieval castle authority from Marseille. <laughs> Tell me, do you have a rim? I do not know what a rim is. Zimmer. Ah, a room. That is what I have been saying, you idiot. Zimmer. 
Does your dog bark? I thought you said your dog did not bite. That is not my dog. No. <laughs> Zing. And incidentally, huh? Zing. Zingo. Oh, that hurt. Um, incidentally, at the end of the prior clip that we played, you heard the alarm goes off. Uh, he actually helps people robbing a bank. They dropped a bundle of money on the ground, and he, he said, "Oh, you forgot your money!" And he threw it in the car for them. Yes, um, that was pretty. Funny. A visual you can't see on radio. Oops! Son of a gun. Sorry oh, that's okay. That. Uh, that we'll get to that at the end. And then uh, from the same movie, uh, the pink, the Return of the Pink Panther. Uh, he does an interrogation of the staff where the uh, where the murder happened. And uh, so that's that's the the last clip I have here, and uh, you want to play that? It's a little long, but it's funny. Uh, it's yeah. Let me skip to where I don't I know if you have that. Starts one. talking. I, I have the video uh, pulled up. I think uh, let's see where we start here. Call oh, it making that's an right. entrance. Making an entrance. Right off parallel bars <laughs> from the well, attic. That felt good. <laughs> Well, now, I expect you're all wondering why I asked you here. It's obvious that the night that wore that suit did not last very long. Yes, as I was saying, um... You were saying you supposed we were all uh, wondering why you called us Look, here. there is no need for you to speak unless I ask you a question. What is your name? I'm Shulk, the gardener. And what is it you do? I'm the gardener. And why didn't you say that to me in the first place? I did. <laughs> Look, don't try to be funny with me, monsieur. This is a very serious matter, and everyone in this room is under the suspicions. Well? What? What would that... You said the room. Yes, I know that. And there is a very good chance that someone in this room knows more about the murder than he is telling. Murder? What was that you said? I said murder. What murder? Well, I don't know if you said murder. I said murder? You said murder. No, I said murder because you said murder. I said murder? You said there was someone in this room who knew more about the murder than he's telling. Now, listen. What was your name? Shulk. The cook. Gardener. Ah, now we are getting somewhere. You. Oh, dear. <laughs> are you all right, Mr. Stutterstaff? Uh, who is this man? He's Mr. Stutterstaff. I see him. What is your job, Mr. Stutterstaff? He's the beekeeper. I'm not asking you. I'm asking Mr. Stuffsucker. What's that? What is he saying to you? What? What, what was that? He, he says he's got a bit of a cold and he's lost his voice. Lost his voice? A beekeeper who has lost his voice, a cook who thinks he's a gardener, and a witness to a murder. Oh, yes, it is obvious to my trained eye that there is much more going on here than meets the ear. Before you are dismissed, Mr. Stiffsticker, I suggest you count your bees. 
You may find that one of them is missing. You ruined that piano! What is the price of one piano compared to the terrible crime that has been committed here? But that's a priceless Steinway! Not anymore. What is your name? <laughs> Mrs. Lever, Lily. Mrs. Lovelever, I would take a shrewd guess that you are the housekeeper, am I right? I have been with Professor Fassbender for 30 years. That would account for your exaggerated hysteria over a simple blemish on the furniture. Blemish? Whatever has happened to the piano can easily be repaired. What has happened to Professor Fassbender and his daughter is another matter. That my hand is on fire. Sorry about that. Didn't catch that music before the end. So there you go. That's, we are running long, okay. Joe, but uh, let's go ahead and... Uh, uh, well, that's about it. Uh, yeah, that's that's one of the f the famous lines. That was a priceless Steinway. Not any, not any. And, uh, <laughs> uh, so, in April 1980, he's in Ireland. He collapses uh, from heart problems again because of that incident with the uh, the drugs. Uh, two days later, he goes to the Cannes Film Festival against the doctor's wishes on the 21st of July 1980. Uh, he uh, checks into the hospital July 24th, 1980 He dies at the age of 54 Damn and Way crazy. too young yes. Way too young And we lost a great comedic uh, uh, Genius, really um, mm -hmm. The English filmmakers John and Roy Bolting uh, Said that he was the greatest comic genius This country has produced Since Charlie Chaplin and uh, he was a great mimic, mm -hmm. so much so that John Cleese said that he had the greatest—he was the greatest voice man of all time. He could listen to you for five minutes and do a perfect impersonation of something he learned from as a kid, listening to the radio. Nice, nice. So, uh, all right. Well, I'll tell you what—we do have to get going to the break. Uh, we have a brand new. Um, uh, mythical moment uh, number 19 from Mr. Adam Hebert and then Miles is going to give us some WW2 info and uh, heading into hour 3 we'll be talking about uh, Michelle's uh, birthday pick, a very horrific one tonight, some birthday trailers and of course we'll get back into the Twilight Zone and um, we'll abbreviate Twilight Zone to accommodate for everybody else if, if need be so um but yeah, so check it out. Uh, new mythical moment coming at you right now. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. <laughs> For Radio for Humans, and it came from Cleveland, this is Adam Hebert with Mythical Moment 19, the Dulahan. Getting ahead in life.
Mythology of the world over is rife with Grim Reaper figures, people and beings that escort the recently deceased from the world to the hereafter. The favorite term for such entities is Psychopomp. Examples of Psychopomps include Hermes from Greece, Anubis from Egypt, and the Valkyries from Norse myth. One such Psychopomp hails from Ireland, and that would be the Dullahan. The Dullahan is a creature of Irish folklore, often referred to as a fairy. However, it should be pointed out that fairy is often used as a catch-all term for creatures of all types in the myths of Ireland. They share some characteristics in common with another Irish harbinger of death, the Banshee. What sets the Dullahan apart, however, makes for a very creepy creature. First, the Dullahan is said to roam the Irish countryside, riding a black coach drawn by headless horses. The Dullahan is usually considered male, although in some versions it is actually female. The defining characteristic of the Dullahan is the head, that it carries, in its arms, as it uses a human spine as a whip to drive its horses onward. The head of the creature is said to be the color and consistency of moldy cheese, and it is said that those who encountered it when not its target got splattered with blood from a bucket for their troubles. In some interpretations of the Dullahan mythology, it is seen as an avatar or version of Krom Du, the Celtic god of death. In modern times and pop culture, Dullahans are often portrayed as attractive women, as is the case in the light novel and anime series Durarara. The coach that the Dullahan rides is rather distinctive as well. Called a Koist Bodhar, or Death Coach, it is all black, and for that extra creepy touch, it is decorated with funeral objects and human remains. For light, it has candles set in human skulls. For wheels, it has wheels made from human thigh bones, and the coach is covered in either decayed human skin or cloth from a coffin. One of the reasons that the Dullahan was more dreaded than the Banshee was because it was said that once the Dullahan and its Koist Bodhar entered the world of living, it could not leave until the coach had the soul of at least one human inside of it. The Dullahan would ride the countryside looking for its intended target or targets, and would stop when it was close enough. Shortly after the Dullahan stopped, its target would die and its soul brought to the death coach. At this point, the Dullahan could leave the living world and humans would be safe, at least for the time being. The story of the Dullahan has endured for a very long time, and even eventually came to America during the colonial period with Irish immigrants, getting notoriety as the story spread in the world. It is likely that its resemblance to the Headless Horseman of Washington Irving's The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which is arguably one of the most beloved American ghost stories ever, is proof of the Dullahan's impact on both Irish and American culture. And what isn't there to like about the Dullahan? It represents the fears humans have of death, but also the allure of the supernatural and the unknown. The imagery in the story of the Dullahan and its death coach makes for a very compelling tale, and the fact that it survives even in this modern world that seems to lack spirituality is proof of that. And before I turn it back over to the It Came From Cleveland crew, I would like to remind everyone that you can catch new episodes of my radio show, Dreadtime Stories, every Wednesday night at 7pm Eastern here on Radio for Humans. For Radio for Humans and It Came From Cleveland, this is Adam Hebert reminding you that if you want to get ahead in life, all it takes is a morose death coach and a bucket of human blood. Back to you, Kenny.
background music is Medieval Fantasy Adventure by Alexander Nakarada, who can be found at www.serpentsoundstudios.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. Thanks, Alexander. Dovetailing off of uh, Adam's advice to get ahead in life. Uh, welcome back uh, to the program. Uh, thank you again, Joe, for uh, the Peter Sellers stuff. Some great audio and uh, history there. Appreciate it. Of course. Although a little troubling. And <laughs> <laughs> Yes. And uh, Michelle, looking forward very much to learning a little bit more about Jeffrey Combs in the next hour. Yes, he's he's a very interesting person. <laughs> oh yeah, done some very interesting roles too. <laughs> Speaking of blood, uh, and all right, and now we pass it off to Miles, our resident uh, World War II history expert. Uh, take it away, sir. Very good. I I just want to take a moment to touch on Doctor Strange Love, because sure. as it was described, I mean, I've never seen the movie, mm -hmm. and. I've heard it referenced. I've seen lots of memes, pictures, clips, you know, and, and what have you, but I've never actually seen it. And as I heard the movie described, I'm like, God, that just sounds so familiar to me. Turns out it's practically identical to a movie called Failsafe, which was released in October of 64, as Dr. Strangelove was December of 63. There was lawsuits involved, unsurprisingly. Anyway, I, I, Failsafe. I loved Failsafe. But uh, it didn't get the, near the accol accol accolades that uh, Doctor Strange loved it. But well, very cool. Anyway, um, so tonight I am going to be talking about the Phantom Fortress. Uh, we'll see how my time allows for the second story. But the Phantom Fortress is a, a story that got sensationalized in the press about a B seventeen bomber that would make it back. Uh, but without any crew, yeah. yeah. And so this is a it, it 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 the media of the time, of course, very sensationalist, looking for any kind of a story that would basically sell papers for mm -hmm. us. And in a time of war, all kinds of crazy things can happen. And in my research, I've uh, came across uh, someone who looked up that there were actually more than one incident. Uh, one happened in um, uh, 43 where a B-17F bomber coming back from uh, a mission flew back over onto Britain, but its um, instruments were damaged, you know, shot up as cockpits often get, <laughs> yeah. as they do. And there was heavy fog. In England, which I know, shocker. I mean, it's uh, so if you've ever been to England, I've only been once, but uh, and that was on a tarmac. <laughs> but yeah, so the, this pilot of this particular bomber was uh, flying blind, could not find the place to land, and so he had he he's he's flying low, trying to get you know 
he, he flew with his his bomber group, but couldn't find where the airfield was. And so as they were running out of fuel, he climbed back up to about 2,000 feet, you know, for safe parachute jumping, had his crew bail out, and he bailed out, and the plane eventually crashed in uh, somebody's backyard, effectively, hitting some trees. And so they, when, when this bomber was found, they're like, oh, wow, this bomber came back without any crew. And so that was like one of the first stories of a bomber that came back without crew. The crew all survived, and they were eventually going on another crew mission, and they were shot down over Germany and spent the rest of the war in a Luftwaffe uh, prison, but yeah, that's that story. It's it's not nearly as as good, I think, as the second story, which is about a B seventeen G. It's a more modern version. So this bomber um, didn't go back to London. It uh, landed, and I use the term "landed" with quotes because. Um, so it's flying back towards Belgium, and Belgium is uh, in, currently held by the Allies in 1944. This is November 23rd of 1944, as the Allies are pushing uh, across uh, to, to, to take Germany. And so the RAF um, has some um, anti-aircraft batteries positioned around their airfields because, you know, you want to shoot down German planes that are coming. And so they see this plane approaching and they know that there are no scheduled landings uh, planned for that day or that time. And so like, oh crap. And they're looking and they say, oh, that's a B-17. And uh, like three of its engines were still running. So they're thinking to themselves, oh, all right, this must be some sort of an emergency. And so, uh, you know, they radio ahead to the, the landing field and they prepare for like, hey, you got an emergency landing incoming. So this bomber comes in at a very high rate of speed. Its landing gear is down. And it lands on the airfield. And with such force that propellers snap off, um, the, one of the wings dips and hits the, the ground. And it does a, what they call like a landing spin, if you will. Mm. It just like... The, but it, it lurches to a halt. You know, uh, obviously, once your propellers are <laughs> snapped off, it's not much to, that's going to no, move the plane. Not a lot of options. So, all right. And so the uh, landing, uh, the field, the field personnel are kind of waiting. They're like waiting for like fifteen minutes, waiting for the crew of this bomber to, you know, jump out, bail out of the plane. You know, like hey, you know, and uh, it doesn't happen. And they're like, huh. And so they, um, I'm tr I, I, I wrote his name down. Uh, Major Tom John Crisp, he finally got the you know, nerve to go up and approach. Like, okay. Because it was, the, the, one of the things that they had considered the possibility was that this was a German uh, captured um, B-17 and it was a trap of some kind. Yeah. But uh, a Major Crisp finally got the nerve after 20 minutes uh, you know, and he approached the plane. Now, the he did not have any familiarity with a B-17 bombers, being British, and it was an American bomber. So it took him a while to find the hatch <laughs> to, to even board the plane. And so he pops open the hatch and climbs inside, and there is no crew. 
And that is that that that's a creepy factor there. Like, oh crap! And so he starts looking around. and He sees uh, uh, nearly a dozen um, parachutes, all wrapped up, ready to go. But there's no crew. Was it the and full so complement of parachutes? It um, the, from what I've read, the crew of a bomber is about nine to ten. And so, yeah, it was almost a dozen. So you're looking at, you know, enough parachutes for a crew. And they're, wow. uh, you know, all wrapped up, ready to mount and put on and be used. But they weren't. They were just laying there. So this uh, major, he starts, you know, checking over and he goes up to the cockpit. That it shuts the engines off. You know, they were still just sitting there, you know, rattling. And uh, he's... He, uh, the 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 instruments of the, the plane look okay. Don't see a problem there. The bomber's mm. sight looks all right. The There's a like a cloth cover that you put over the bomber's sight when it's not in use. That was folded neatly to the side as if, you know, it was used. There was a code book on the navigator's desk that had the, the, the day's codes for identification purposes. You know, there you, you've got for... Um, you know, code words and what have you to identify yeah. yourself. And um, in that code book, the, the, one of the last entries written in it, it just said heavy flak, which, you know, they, they didn't really see damage on the plane. They're like, other than the damage that the plane caused to itself um, mm -hmm. from the hard landing. And so... This and they found uh, fur-lined jackets, you know, because it's high altitude and it gets cold. But the jackets were just there. They see chocolate bars, some of them half-eaten, and they're it's very it's like very crazy. So they're like, "What the hell happened to the crew?" So naturally, of course, like I said, the the media gets hold of this story and it just goes crazy across everywhere and starts talking about it. Well, um, all bombers have. Um, code numbers, numbers that, you know, designated. And the bombers and the Air Force, uh, I, I don't say the Air Force, the Air Group, there was no Air Force in World War II. Mm -hmm. the, so the, I think it was actually the Army, Air, Air, Air Group. So the records were meticulous. And so they could look at the bomber, the number on the bomber and go, okay. And so they found out, they knew which bomber group it would belong to. It was assigned to the... Uh, 91st Bomber Group, and they were assigned that day to go bomb oil refineries in Mersenburg, Germany. So uh, it turns out that the nine uh, crew of that bomber did bail out safely and were recovered by the Army. And they were eventually sent back to England and uh, you know, given another plane. But they told the story of what they went through. And so basically, the this bomber was en route on mission to go with it in formation, and they developed a problem with the with the bombs, the the bomb rack or something. It, I don't know, it got jammed up. It, the details are sketchy. And so they fell out of formation in order to correct the problem so that they could actually perform the mission of dropping bombs on the target.
And in the process of dropping out of formation, they actually got attacked by enemy uh, anti-air force, uh, uh, you know, flak or maybe even a fighter. I, I, that, that, again, details are sketchy. Mm-hmm. And in the process, a flak goes off underneath and uh, underneath the, the, the bomber and damages the um, <laughs> bomb rack for sure this time <laughs> and one of the engines. And it starts to cause serious problems in the uh, bomber to the point where an engine shuts down and their vibrations in the airframe and they're steadily losing altitude. Altitude is life. If you can't maintain altitude, you're going down. And so the the pilot, I mean, desperate to keep the airplane in the air, starts ordering his men to start jettisoning non-vital equipment in order to maintain, uh, uh, you know, to, to lighten the load. That doesn't mm-hmm. work. The plane's still losing altitude. So they're like, screw it. All right, so I think they managed to drop the bombs someplace safe where they don't hit anything. They uh, And they decide, we're not going back to Britain. And they turn towards Belgium. And now, in the process, the plane is getting even more um, unflight-worthy, if you will. It, it They... they, they and so, like, they got a bail. They can't even make it. They, the, at least, they don't think they're going to make it to Belgium, but they do make it over uh, Allied the Allied lines, and that's where the the crew uh, bails out of the aircraft. And the captain is the last individual to bail out, and he sets the plane on autopilot. And I guess he's the one that puts the landing gear down too. I don't know why, but. He did. And so uh, they all bail out of the aircraft and the the plane flies by itself until it just happens, you know, as luck would have it, to fly into a uh, an allied airfield uh, and, and just happen to land. Again, I use air quotes or words around, around the word land. It actually went into an airfield. Well... What we think of as places where planes take off and land, I mean, when you think of an airport, you've got runways that are nice and paved. You didn't have that in World War II. You, all you needed was a big, flat surface. Okay, I so mean, it was in wide. the in the proximity of uh, of where they would land lots yes, of planes. Right. And so it was, it, these are huge fields that are, you know, yeah. level, <laughs> level enough for um, these planes to, uh, to 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 take off and land in, in massive numbers, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's a testament to how tough these planes are and were that the plane managed to make it back, effectively crash land, and that plane was reserviced and put and it became a, a serviceable again. And, and was put back out into the field to once again fly. Wow. Uh, so that's um, that's the story of this bomber that, that uh, was uh, <laughs> basically, you know, landed without a crew. So that, that's the Phantom Fortress um, uh, story of, uh, you know, World War II. Yeah, it's actually bonkers. kind of a combination of the two bombers. But, yeah. Uh, but that that one is the one that is most uh, uh, talked about. Mm-hmm. 
Interesting. So, um, I noticed my time is very short, and the next story I want to tell, I, I'm probably going to, I'll give a teaser for it, but uh, I'm not, uh, the, the, the credit I want to give it, I, um, I got, yeah, got three pages of notes. I'm not going to be able to make, make it through it for sure. Uh, but I'll give a teaser. So this bomber was actually towards the end of the war, and it, it had the tail number of 41-2666, and it was named Old Hattie, and it was considered an unlucky bomber, and it was ready to get scrapped. And this is a story about a crew that took this bomber, lovingly restored her, and uh, went on, on uh, a mission that I will talk about. And uh, they became the most decorated crew in American air service history for what they did for the missions, you know, that they do. And uh, it's, uh, I, I love this story. So um, it, the, the name of the bomber was, a they dropped the old Hattie name and they went with old 666. So uh, this story I want to talk about of, um, of that. Cool. So, uh, if, if, if you want to go to break, that's cool, but I would like to touch back up on the movie Failsafe, uh, that I mentioned earlier at the start of my segment. Uh, Unless you have things you want to say. No, no. Uh, if you want to go ahead and talk about Failsafe real quick, uh, you should do it now. Cause we're going to get into Michelle's, uh, it'll be way okay. off topic for Michelle's segment. All right. So Failsafe is a movie starring, uh, Henry Fonda as the president and Larry Hagman as the interpreter. And it is also about a movie where a, uh, a bomber group, uh, not just one bomber, but a, a, a full flight, is erroneously sent to go bomb <laughs> Russia. And this particular bomber was assigned Moscow. And uh, there's a scene... I mean, it's basically like, oh shit, they're going. The word, the reason for the word failsafe is that the bombers, once they get the order, there is there is no turning back. Nothing will get them to turn back because they can't trust any communications because they think that the Russians will have hacked communications or are trying to trick them. They even get the pilot's mother to talk to him on the radio, and they don't turn back. It's like it's 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 gut wrenching. And there's one scene I recall where Dom DeLuise is a sergeant and he knows these bombers inside and out. And a commanding officer pulls him up and says, hey, this is so-and-so in the Russian you know, Air Force. Tell him everything you know about the bomber and how to shoot him down. And, and Dom DeLuise is like, what are you saying? And the, and the commanding officer strikes, I mean, literally slaps Dom DeLuise and is screaming at him, you tell this man everything you know now! You know, it's like, it was like very intense wow. in order to prevent World War III. They got to shoot these bombers down because Moscow's going to be, you know, uh, flash shadowed. Yeah, yeah. And one role, the Larry Hagman, I can't give enough praise to Larry Hagman for his performance in this movie because he... Henry Fonda, uh, the president, tells the interpreter, I want you to use your voice inflections when you're listening to the Russian president and you convey as much as you can about his emotional state. And Larry Hagman just knocks it out of the park, in my opinion, uh, on that role. And um, I won't ruin the movie about you know what 
you know how it ends. Uh, but it's I enjoyed the hell out of it. Uh, it was cool. very tense, very anti-war, you know, like the, or anti-nuke, mm-hmm. I should say, uh, movie. And uh, yeah, it butted heads. It, it didn't do as well. It came ten months after um, Strange Love, and so I mean, Strange Love, I guess, was more humor, and this one was actually dark, and maybe people just were drawn more to the um, humorous side of movie rather than the dark side, but. Uh, yeah, failsafe. Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. I was riveted as a kid watching this movie. So cool. Well, uh, I will have to check it out because that sounds right up my alley. Maybe I'll do a double feature uh, with that. With that and uh, Strange Love. But yeah, looking forward to the uh, the six 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 story. I wonder who. I'm I, I'm I'm wondering uh, who the captain could have been. Could it be? Uh, Who told you? Oh, oh, spoilers. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) we're going to hit the break. We'll be right back. Michelle will uh, give us some uh, fun uh, fun facts and info and audio clips related to one Jeffrey Combs. Happy birthday to you. We'll be right back. It's going to be a good night. It came from Cleveland, Ohio. A land of strange rituals. The savage horrors of fearsome mutated beasts. Back from the dead. Kept alive by experimental science. Science runs amok when human beings tamper with unknown forces. Cut the power! Now at last, the real shocking story can be told. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. A nightmare combination of shock and terror, and you're invited. A foolish unto Something evil. Oh, it is not the appearance of life, it is life. This is not magic, as you say. I am a scientist. Not recommended for impressionable children. Yeah, not this segment. <laughs> no. Ah, <laughs> uh, wow, what memories of this man I have. And, uh, of course, welcome back. And thank you, Miles, for the info on Failsafe and uh, the Phantom uh, the Phantom Plane. That's pretty cool. Yep, yep. And uh, looking forward to the, the Satan Plane. Uh, and, Joe, of course, welcome back to you. Thank you for, the, the again, the, the fun and depressing uh, life of Peter Sellers. <laughs> Is that your Doug? <laughs> <laughs> That's not my Doug. <laughs> oh no, I was supposed to do a German accent. But anyway, uh, welcome back, everybody, and Michelle. Uh, go ahead and uh, set this one up. You've got a uh, quite the uh, quite the character actor to talk about tonight, Michelle. Oh, sorry, I hit the wrong one. Oh, okay. <laughs> there you go. We're going to be talking about Jeffrey Allen Combs. Um, People will recognize him. I mean, he has done so much work. I was absolutely flabbergasted when I looked at, at, at his IMG page and all the stuff he's done. You know, I, I, I'm good with voices. I'm not really great with, with, with names. But, you know, I am just really surprised at, 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 at the different things. Um, he, uh, he had a whole bunch of older and younger siblings when he was born in Oxnard, California. Um he attended the Pacific Conservatory of the Performing Arts in Santa Maria. 
and the Professional Actors Training Program in the University of Washington in Seattle. Um, wow. And he started, yeah, he started off his career in regional theater. Very you know, a lot cool. of the old theaters, like the old Globe Theater in San Diego, the Arizona Theater Company in Tucson, mm -hmm. the California Shakespearean Festival. You know, he he had quite the stage career. I guess so. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and in 1980, he moved to Los Angeles with his family. Um, and, uh, well, 1980, he moved to Los Angeles, and now he lives there with his family. Um, but his his face is, you know, whether it's been on TV or his voice acting career, he is most well known for being um, Herbert West in the cult horror film Reanimator. Oh, I love it. You uh, want me to go and run the trailer uh, right yeah. now? Yeah, run All the trailer right. real quick. There you go. Herbert West is at the top of his class in medical school. How can you teach such drivel? These people are here to learn and you're closing their minds before they even have a chance. What are He's you? brilliant, but a little weird. I've broken the six to 12 minute barrier. I've conquered brain death. His experiments have always been unorthodox. It was dead. But lately, they're getting out of hand. And he's just made a discovery that could wake up the dead. Herbert West has affected reanimation in dead animal tissue. What are you thinking? How do you feel? You? 15 cc's of reagent being administered. Once you wake up the dead, you've got a real mess on your hands. Dead? Not anymore. Herbert West brought a lot of dead people back to life. And not one of them showed any appreciation. <laughs> H.P. Lovecraft's classic tale of horror, Reanimator. Mr. West. You'll never get credit for my discovery. Who's going to believe a talking head get a job in a sideshow? <laughs> it will scare you to pieces. This is, I gotta say, hands down, probably one of the goriest, single most gory movies I think I've ever seen. It's got some gore, especially that little kitten cat you heard uh, meowing. Oh, that was not boy. a pretty little kitty. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, so that was the one thing I didn't appreciate. Could have picked another animal. Yeah. Get, get but, a rat. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that's um, one of the first movies that, uh, um, that got him the name as the first Lovecraftian actor. Yes. Yeah. And he proceeded to be in many more Lovecraftian adaptations and movies after that. Um, and but, the, uh, the director of uh, Reanimator, what, what, what's his name? Oh, gosh. Uh, it's on the tip of my brain. I'm trying to remember. Uh, I'm looking it up. So, But he worked with that director several times. Um, and uh, and he, he did a few different... Um, 
uh, whatchamacallit, uh, Lovecraft movies with him, uh, Stuart Gordon, Stuart Gordon. And, um, he'd, uh, he was also in, uh, uh, From Beyond in 1986, the year after that came out. And, um, but he did, um, he did a lot of really good stuff, um, even did space truckers, so he actually did some kind of mainstream stuff as well. But uh, Dagon was another one he did that I re I liked in two thousand one. Yeah, um, so but you know it, it it's really it, it's kind of funny when you can become that sort of an icon where you are considered like the first of something. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it's pretty cool and. Um, most of my stuff has to deal with Lovecraft, but the next movie I wanted to mention him in um, is is a movie called The Frighteners. And this is a funny movie about a psychic uh, uh, played by Michael J. Fox, who haunts, who has a pair, who has some ghosts that haunt houses for him, so he can come in and uh, remove them, <laughs> and he makes money off of it that way. And uh, let's just run the trailer for that, and then I'll set up the scene. All right. There has been a destructive force unleashed on this town such as I have never seen. Oh, my God, I don't believe this is not happening. We have got a poltergeist. Okay, well, folks, I can do a clearance, but it's not going to be cheap. Although I do offer a six-month guarantee. That fellow takes us totally for granted. Hey, Stuart, in or out, huh? Frank Bannister had a remarkable ability. Psychic investigator? To communicate with the dead. You, you can see spirits? Emanations are normally confined to the cemetery. You cannot push spirits around! Although they do escape. And an uncanny knack. We're gonna scare the living daylights out of your parents. <gasps> for making a profit off the living. We're supposed to be his business partners. Everyone says that you're a fraud, but I've seen what you can do. Give it up, Frank. Death ain't no way to make a living. But now... <laughs> Some things put the fear of death in the living. What is happening to me? And send the dead yes! running for their lives. I've seen a figure in a cape. That was the soul collector. When your number's up, that's it. Frank, we got problems. All these murders that have been going on in Fairwater, they're gonna pin them on you. Pictures and Robert Zemeckis. You're next, pal. And acclaimed director Peter Jackson. We don't stop till the screaming starts. You did. The Frighteners. You know, I forgot all about this movie. I forgot that Michael J. Fox was involved. I forgot that Peter Jackson directed it. I did. I had no idea Jeffrey Combs was in it. And John Aston. Oh, perfect. Old Gomez Adams. Yeah, so, yes, it was. And it's, it's such a cool movie um, because it shows um, uh, Jeffrey Combs acting chops beautifully. There is mm -hmm. a speech that shows why he doesn't like Michael J. Fox's character <laughs> that I clipped out. It's a little long, but you guys are going to love it. Lucy, you're still grieving. 
would be very easy for a man like Frank Bannister to take advantage. Oh, you have such closed minds, I can't believe it. I object. Special Agent Dammers has over 20 years' experience in the area of uh, paranormal psychology. Much of that was spent undercover with various cults and sects. I, I get all the fruity cases, Mrs. Linsky. For God's sake, Milton, would you come inside and sit down? I'm more comfortable standing. Thank you. I really don't see what this has to do with Frank Bannister. Mrs. Linsky, you know nothing about Frank Bannister. You claim he's a bona fide psychic, yet all I've heard is a lot of ill-informed, meandering waffle. On the third day of July, 1990, Frank Bannister, then a successful architect, was overseeing the construction of his new home. Now, the building contractor, Jacob Platz, would later confirm that Bannister had been consuming alcohol that morning. 12.23 p.m., Platz sees Bannister in a heated argument with his wife, Deborah. It appears that Bannister had promised Deborah a garden in the new home, and then, without consulting her, proceeded to lay a four-inch thick concrete slab, creating a basketball court for himself. 12.31 p.m., Platz watches the couple drive away. Bannister kept a toolbox in the back of his car. And in it was a utility knife with a retractable blade. Bannister purchased seven new blades that morning at Jessen's Hardware Store and Building Supply on the corner of 3rd and Garrett. 3rd and Garrett, 3rd of July. Seven blades, three. Milton, you're, you're mumbling. We can't understand a word you're saying. 12.33 p.m. Their 84 Volvo heads into the hills. It is the last time anyone will see the couple together. Now, by Bannister's own admission, the argument continues to rage, reaching a climactic point when Deborah demands that Bannister stop, pull over, let her out, and at that moment, probably 12.36, 12.37 p.m., the car leaves the road on a sharp curve. Presumably because Bannister was driving too fast. She was killed? body was found some 15 yards from the car. Now, Bannister, he was picked up two hours later, wandering in the woods. He claimed to have no recollection of the events that occurred after the accident. But here's the odd thing, Mrs. Linsky. His utility knife was missing. And to this day, it has not been found. But do you know what was really bizarre? Deborah's corpse had the number 13 carved into its forehead. You can just hear the maniacal oh, yeah. obsession he has in his voice. It's so nicely done. Oh, it really is. Yeah, that was that was uh, some uh, some amazing chops there. Yeah, so it's 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 in a movie I enjoy. It's one of the few Michael J. Fox's Fox movies I actually do like. So, because um, I, I had a I have a problem with some of his earlier and some of his later interviews and stuff when he before you know he ended up getting sick. So, 
he came off as a, as really conceited sometimes, which is a shame. But no, I can see um, that. That's fine. But uh, yeah, so that is the Frighteners. Fun little movie. If you haven't seen it, it's a good little comedy. I enjoy it. Uh, nice little horror aspect to it without being gory. So I really, um, I really recommend it. Um, the next thing, the next clip I have is the trailer for Howard Lovecraft and the Kingdom of Madness. This is an anime feature that came out in 2018. And again, Lovecraft connection. Love that. Here we go. This time has been delayed enough. Your son Cthulhu is before me. Howard, you're no longer facing mere servants of evil, but evil itself. Oh, I know that voice. You don't scare me. Howard, stop! Magic only increases the tears between dimensions. My father, a Lovecraft, is responsible for most of this. I know my spells and have been on these journeys before, and I need to do this. What are you suggesting? Trying to go to Vrul? Vrul is where we can stop everything. Spot! Now that we have this big fellow, we should be able to solve all our problems. If Spot wakes up, he would be Cthulhu, the destroyer of worlds. I think I heard Mark Hamill in there, too. It's a fun little movie. It really, really is. It sounds like is it CGI or uh, or traditional animation? Um, it's kind of oh, oh God, I can't remember what, what what how I would term it. Um, I don't know if it's so much Pixar. I'd I'd have to look at it again. Okay, that's fine. I can look it up. That's all right. You just keep talking. I mean, it's hard sometimes with the way they're 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 being done nowadays. It's hard to tell. That's <laughs> sometimes also yeah. Sometimes true. it's yeah. But um, yeah, so that's another Huffgafter, and there's several in that series of movies. They're really fun to watch. Uh, they, you know, at first I thought they were a little kiddie, but mm, when I actually paid attention, I feel like eh, there's a little adult in this too. So kind of like Pixar movies, you know, mm -hmm. you have something for the kids and something for the adults. Yeah. And um, but another amazing thing uh, about Jeffrey Combs, not only about his. Um, career as as you know the first lovecraftian actor but he also had a very sterling acting uh tie-in to star trek he That's had right. he had he was in about 31 episodes of ds9 and he has played several different characters um and here's a here's here's a here's a little discussion on on, on his first role, um, and on DS9. The very first uh, part I did on Deep Space Nine was a a, a guest star in a episode called Meridian. I think in the third season, uh, and I was sort of the B story. I I played this very sort of orange turtle-like alien who comes to Quark and I want a hologram of Kira. He's promised me one. And uh, there's a famous picture actually of uh, this beautiful body with, uh, with, with Quark's, beautiful female body with Quark's head on it. You know, you, maybe you've seen that or, or, or not. 
maybe if you haven't seen it, you don't want to. But uh, but anyway, that's from that episode. Uh, that's sort of the gag at the end of the episode. Now, I believe we agreed I'd be paid on delivery. I haven't seen the merchandise yet. You know, Quark, if this program is as good as you claim, I might just purchase it from you to use at home. You have your own Holosuite? Just a little present I bought myself. His very own Holosuite. It's good to have money. Yeah, so with, with, with it being Star Trek week, I, I, I figured we, sh- we should mention that. Oh, yeah. There you go. Since he's, yeah, since he has done so many different aliens. He even played the really um, awful ambassador for the Dominion. That was a pretty, a pretty, a pretty uh, intense role. Um, but, um, yeah, so he's done, he's done voice work. I mean, he played the character H, HP Hatecraft in the Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated <laughs> series. Yeah. That's a great he, name. He voiced Kite Man in Batman the Brave and the Bold. Uh, that's kind of perfect for him, really. And he's also voiced a Scarecrow as well. Wow. Yeah, that's a. I can see that a good one being a good one for him as well. And yeah. a little trivia about him in Star Trek. Um, mm-hmm. He originally auditioned for the role of Commander Riker. Really? Yeah, but even though he didn't get the role, Jonathan Frakes uh, remembered Combs, and when he was directing an, uh, an episode of Star Trek DS Nine in 1993, he cast him as a guest role on that episode. And then you know the producers liked him so much that. He was later cast in other two different recurring roles on the show. And as I said, over 31 episodes. So there you go. That's pretty wild. So, um, the, uh, uh, you know, I, I, 30, so 31 different, I mean, he never reprised the same character then, right? No, he did. He did. Oh, but he did? it was 31 episodes. Yeah. Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. I thought you were saying he was, he played different aliens. No. Oh, okay. All right. So no, oh, he that's... had he had, no, he had like f- there's three or four different aliens he played, but the most of them was like the Dominion ambassador. Okay. And one or two of them were one-offs. So fascinating. So yeah, that's uh no, that's that's really cool. I uh, you know, I I really I- enjoy everything I've seen him in. And by the way, the Howard Lovecraft in the Kingdom of Madness that's the one you had the trailer for, right? Or yeah. Yes. Uh, that one. That was Christopher Plummer's last role before he died. I did not know that. That is yeah. Cool. That was his final voice acting role before he died. I should say. Uh, but yeah, looking at the animation, it kind of looks like uh, it kind of looks like a CGI uh, kind of looking thing. But it's very. It's it still has some cool looking traditional line work in it. Yeah, it's 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 a fun little one, and you know I like anything about Cthulhu. So even if it's you know even if it's a little kitty, like I, I don't mind. Well, you know? I mean Doug Bradley's in this too. Pinhead, the original Pinhead from Hellraiser. He has so, a great voice, and and of course you know Mark Hamill was a dead giveaway, and that's, <laughs> as soon as I heard his voice, I was like, okay, there you go. So, but no, that's and another- great. what a cast. 
Oh yeah, it's it, it, it's a lot of fun. They're a lot of fun to watch. They're 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 cute. They're cute little uh, 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 dimension hopping capers, which are. And this fun. is something Shout Factory puts out. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed him. Very cool. Um, and another little bit of trivia about him: he's the only actor to appear appear in both House on Haunted Hill in 1999 and Return to House on Haunted Hill in 2007. Okay, very cool. So, little, uh, you know, and I guess we have to count him among the uh, modern, uh, the aging modern horror masters, you know, since we, we've lost all the, um, you know, the classic uh, guys, you know, obviously the, the last two generations, I suppose, of horror uh, actors. So, we've got, you know, him in with like Robert England and, and Doug Bradley and... Um, you know, uh, everybody else that, uh, his, you know, uh, oh, oh, and what's his name? Um, oh, uh, Ash from Evil Dead, um, uh, Bruce Campbell. Yes, yes. So, Bruce Campbell. Yep. Yeah. The chin. I, you know, and I would love to see a movie. How cool would it be if they did like what, what, you know, Stallone did with, uh, the Expendables, but we got one of those entourage horror movies like the, what was Tales of Terror? Wasn't that one? Uh, that that a whole bunch of the was that one of the movies Tales of Terror or or um oh yeah that that had a big you know cast with um Carradine and Price and oh yeah like that and Twice Told Tales and, yeah Twice and, Told Tales yeah, and all that stuff yeah and like uh like the the one of the, the I think the really old Tales from the Crypt one too. Yeah, you know, they could get Kane Hodder and all kinds of people for something like that. That would be cool. Let's let's produce that. This. That would be neat. <laughs> yeah, let's get a production company going. That'd be cool. Kind of yeah. hard business to get into, though. <laughs> I know. I, I tease. So, uh, but yeah, uh, anything else, Michelle? Before the birthday trailer block? No, I think that's pretty good. Um, I covered everything I wanted to on him. So awesome. So, so we have a good birthday block coming up. Yeah, tell the folks and, what, what to expect. Well, this one made me cringe making it, but it's all right. Um, the first one we have, we have David Arquette, September 8th, 1971, born in Winchester, Virginia. And his movie we're, we're showing is Eight-Legged Freaks. Then we have Corbin Burnson, September 7th, 1954, in Hollywood, Los Angeles, California. And his movie is The Dentist. This is the one that made me cringe, because I remember seeing it originally, and it's just as horrifying to me now as it was back then. Um, and uh, we have Hugh Grant, uh, September 9th, uh, Hammersmith, London, England. We have Lair of the White Worm for him. And we have a special one, Idris Elba, September 6th, 1972, from Hackney, London, England. And we have uh, the Dark Tower with him. All right, here we go. Well, sir, someday I'd like to be a, a dentist. Prosperity, Arizona. Right here at KFRD. The only source for the inside dope on space aliens and when they plan to invade. Present. It's time for America to wake up, people! Wake up before it's too late! People are saying, well, you know, it's coyotes and it's wolves, but we know the truth. 
exactly is that? Spider-Man. Our town is being attacked by giant spiders. Warner Brothers Pictures presents the biggest, <laughs> nastiest mutant spider movie of all time. Oh yeah! Get back! Wait-legged freaks! Hi there. Is this your first trip to the dentist? You a little scared? No? Good. Give me five. Dr. Alan Finestone's a renowned dentist who's got it all. The anniversary. A beautiful wife, a thriving practice, and an impeccable reputation. I know I'm early. Couldn't wait, huh? No more braces, thank God. Build up quite a practice, doctor. Decay is always busy, so we're always busy. But behind the success is a man who's feeling the pressure. The IRS? You got real tax problems. When I tell you to do something, you do it. Oh, as short staffed as it is. Do you dress like that in front of the pool, man? Would you like to make another appointment? I had an appointment. You're not wearing anything. Now, Dr. Finestone's gone over the edge. <gasps> this is my wife! Please, please. Tonight you pay for all that you've done to me. Maybe we should close up until things are under control. Things are under control! Everything is under control! What we've got here is a seriously derailed train. The man over the edge. Open wide. The dentist. There now. Better? Snake God. I'm Snake 
watching. As if they were just swallowed up. John Dampton went a fishing once, a fishing in the weir. He caught a fish upon his hook. He thought, look, mighty queer. Now what the kind of fish it was, John Dampton couldn't tell. But he didn't like the look of it, so he threw it down a well. Ha! Well, you mustn't take the word worm too literally. It's an adaptation of the Anglo-Saxon virum, meaning dragon or snake. Ah, the experience of a lifetime. Now the worm got fat and growed, and growed an awful size. With great big teeth and a great big mouth and great big goggle eyes. So John set out and cut the beast and cut it into halves. And that soon stopped it, eating babes and sheep and lads and cats. From the director of Altered States, and the creator of Dracula, a new movie of venom and vengeance. Ken Russell's The Lair of the White Worm. I'm famished. We stop on the way for a bite. Watch out for your ass. The tower is all that stands between light and darkness. For thousands of generations, the gunslingers were knights, sworn to protect it. Now I'm the only one left. Tower will fall. Get used to the carnage. Now the wars come to Earth. You really think you can stop me, gunslinger? Come on! Everyone who walks with you dies. No more. I do not shoot with my hand. I shoot with my mind. I do not kill with my gun. I kill with my heart. How dry I am, how dry I am, nobody cares, how dry I am. Oof, that was rough. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I meant to play that sooner because I needed to get a beer, but I finally got a beer. So, uh, Welcome back to uh, It Came From Cleveland for uh, September 10th, 2021. Uh, and again, uh, thank you everybody. Michelle, that was awesome. Lots of great Jeffrey Combs information and audio. Very good. Thank you. You're welcome. It's a lot of fun to look into him. He, 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 he's, he's, he's one of my favorites. Yes, for sure. And Miles, thank you as well, uh, for your, the WW2, uh, flashback and, uh, the, uh, what was the film called again that was, uh, involved in the lawsuit with Strangelove? Failsafe. Failsafe. So, and there was a remake done by George Clooney in the year two thousand. Oh, interesting, interesting. And of course, Joe uh, with the, uh, the fantastic uh, audio clips from uh, the late great Peter Sellers. Uh, Fifty-four years old. That's so crazy. Mm, yeah, 
Also and... crazy to take drugs before you have sex. Yeah. Um, that have yeah. You, give give you heart attacks. Sure can. Uh, and uh, yeah. So uh, welcome back and happy birthday, of course, uh, Michael Keaton and Henry Thomas as well. Um, I had a lot of fun with uh, that tonight as well. Uh, but yeah, so we are back. We're uh, this, uh, the uh, the uh, Twilight Zone uh, still on hiatus. Uh, Sixty-one years ago today. Uh, so we are backtracking and we are um, exploring uh, the beginning of season one. Uh, and we are back to uh, we are up to episode three before we resume uh, uh, the you know, with season two when that starts up in the beginning of next month, I think. I'm going to have to look that up. We'll find out. Um, but yeah, so this one is called, uh, uh, oh gosh, what was the name of it again? Mr. Denton on Doomsday? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And uh, this is a Western-themed one. And of course, uh, one of the stars was one one. Very skinny, very young Martin Landau, uh, as as a, 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 a the the heavy, as Joe said, uh, who who taunts our Mister Denton, who appears to be the town drunk, and uh, the scene opens with Denton getting thrown out on his tuchus of the local tavern, and then being approached by uh, a gang of fellas led by Martin Landau's character, taunting him. For his, uh, so he can have his next drink. And here's that clip. Let's see you pay for your drink in your own inimitable fashion, huh? A song, Denton. How about it? How dry. Come on now, come on. Come on, Denton. Get up. Come on, Denton. How dry I am. How dry I am. Charlie, can't you break that up? Nobody knows. I don't like it any more than you do. The How misery they give that guy out there. How dry I am. Nobody cares. How dry I am. <laughs> <laughs> So what Landau did there with the liquor bottle he was taunting him with is he smashed the top of the the stem off the bottle, tossed it out into the street, and Denton proceeds to run over and clutch the bottle, the broken bottle, and start slurping wildly out of it. It is one of the most uncomfortable, awful scenes I've seen yet. One of the most disturbing scenes I've seen from a Twilight Zone episode. Yes. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and uh, one can only assume he had lacerations on his tongue from doing such a thing. Um, but <laughs> but yeah, so Joe, I'll, I'll let you uh, uh, go, uh, you know, so... so uh, he's humiliated. He's obviously the town drunk. Um, but there is actually here. I'll set it up a little bit more, and then you can um, uh, give a little more 
information. Uh, so here's the Rod Serling intro introduction. Um, and did everybody get to watch this one? Yes. I've watched it recently. I don't think Miles was able to watch okay. it. All right. Well, this is where you learn. Portrait of a town drunk named Al Denton. This is a man who's begun his dying early. A long, agonizing route through a maze of bottles. Al Denton, who would probably give an arm or a leg or a part of his soul to have another chance. To be able to rise up and shake the dirt from his body and the bad dreams that infest his consciousness. In the parlance of the times, this is a peddler. A rather fanciful looking little man in a black frock coat. <laughs> and this is the third principal character of our story. Its function, perhaps to give Mr. Al Denton his second chance. Joe, who was that third character? You know, I forgot. Who was the th Was it the bottle? Uh, no, I think uh, Sharky might have picked it up if he'd seen it. A knife? A, a, gun. Glow, a, a gun. A gun. That's oh, the right. gun, the gun, the gun. Yeah, that's yeah, right. The gun. The, mm -hmm. That uh, the, the peddler uh kind of glances over where Denton is on the ground and uh mm -hmm. a gun materializes at his side mysteriously yeah. strategically placed yeah yeah and Denton uh picks it up and he sort of walks back toward the bar not to do anything but then he gets taunted again by Martin Landau and his punk group uh um, and I got audio of how that goes, if you would like. Okay. Here we go. Wait a minute, Denton. Hey, Gunner! Hey! Where'd you get the artillery? I found it. Found it right over there in the street. Is that a fact? Hey! But it's a long time since you used one of them, isn't it, Rummy? Yeah. A long time. Maybe you could use it now. Yeah. Maybe you could even outdraw me. No, I wouldn't know how to use it anymore. Well, let's see you try. Come on, you and me will draw. All right, all right, Dan, cut it out. Go it's on. not funny anymore. Get away, Liz. The gun on me, we're going to have a showdown here. Come on, Gunner. It's left to Oh, Dan, stop it. Come on, Dan. Liz is right. Go on back to the show. bar, Charlie. Can't you see we got private business? Listen, here? Dad. Come on out here. Come on, Rummy. Come on! I'm gonna give you a break, Rummy. I'm gonna do it left-handed. Miss Smith, tell him. Please tell him. Please, Miss Smith, explain to him. Please tell him it was an accident. I don't want any trouble. 
Mr. Hoodling. That's what? my shooting. Yeah. Mr. Hoodling, listen. I'm going to get a drink. It's on the house. You get your eye back out. You must crack some or something. I ain't seen shooting like that since I don't know when. It's against Hoodling, too. It isn't even mine. Yeah. The drink's on the house. Hey, Rummy. Face me, Denton. It was an accident, Mr. Hodling. I'm gonna get this right in your stomach. Dan, give him a break. I didn't mean to. I didn't even mean to. I didn't even mean to. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I love this because everybody's like, wow, I've never seen shooting like that ever before. And it's like, well, yeah, you shouldn't because he's just like sloppily pointing a loaded pistol at somebody not even looking, and then the gun goes off, and they're like, wow, what great shooting! And then he's, like, waving it around, using it to point at things, and shoots off the, the I wouldn't say, I would say lamp uh, from the ceiling. I wouldn't quite say a chandelier. Um, and uh, it falls and hits Landau's gun. Gun falls to the ground. And then, all of a sudden, Michelle, there's a newfound respect for Mr. Denton. They don't call him Rummy anymore. Yeah, correct. And, you know, he's... Uh uh, those two shots that, that took, you know, disarmed Lando. Um, yeah, he they get his respect back. His, he, he gets his dignity back. Um, he starts to think, you know, he, he, he's, he, he's even going to swear off the liquor now. Yeah, and um, he decides he's going to go get himself a shave. Yes, and, and, and become respectable again. And um, it's... Uh, uh, but the problem is with the respect and and what he did, the rumors will start to grow, and it's going to get him back in the same situation he was running from in the bottle to begin with. Yes, and with that comes a heavy price. Um, and uh, and I couldn't help but think, Joe, his little story here about how he used to be a gunfighter sounded an awful lot like the Waco kid story from Blazing Saddles. Again, <laughs> yeah, I have not seen Blazing Saddles. Well, so. uh, it, well, Bart, uh, not it gets the information out of the Waco kid played by uh, Gene Wilder, um, and Gene Wilder begins to relay this story about how you know every you know young punk would come into town wanting to pick a fight with the Waco kid until he, he you know somebody said you know uh, draw Mister and he turned around and it was like a 10 year old kid or something like that and then he, he so he dropped his guns and he turned around and walked away and the little shit shot him in the ass <laughs> yeah and it's, it's 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 kind of similar to the robert vaughn character too in 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 magnificent seven ah okay there you go so you that, know, that he was he was a he was a little bit of an uh, of an alcoholic himself because mm -hmm. he was running away from everybody trying to kill him and he he could pay hundreds of dollars for a room and it would be the worst room in the place like in the stable or mm -hmm. back by the outhouse because yeah. he had such a uh, people were always gunning for him. So uh, literally and figuratively. Um, and so this is, uh, this is Denton uh, talking to, uh, the, the, uh, the barmaid from the tavern, uh, about how he used to be good. I was real good. 
I was so good that once a day, someone would ride into town to make me prove it. And every morning, I'd start my drinking a few minutes earlier. Until one morning, the guy who asked me to prove it turned out to be 16 years old. He shot me in the ass, no. I left him there on his face, right there in front of the saloon. I left him there bleeding to death with my bullet in him. I guess it'll start all over again now. Every fast and fancy man who owns a gun will come riding in down that street. Fancy men, you say? Only this time it'll be me face down, bleeding to death. I think I'll go in and get a shave. I want to look proper on the day I die. You got fancy men come at it for him. Oh, uh, you know what you are? You're, you're one of those little uh, fancy lads, aren't you? <laughs> Boy, you're cute. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry, I had to had to put that in there. Thank you, David Letterman, cabin boy. And uh, yeah, so so Joe, he he laments that you know he used to be good. He goes, he gets a shave, he gets cleaned up, and the he, and he and he heads back to uh, his um, his room where he where he lives, uh, you know, apartment or whatever it is, or hotel room. And right. uh, uh, and he gets some visitors. Hmm. Agents, agents of another gunslinger. Yeah. And they uh, come into his room and they tell him basically, you "Better get ready because so and so is coming to get you. Uh, hmm. He's gonna wanna want you to prove it in the street there with your gun. Um, don't try to run away. Don't try to get out of town." You know, uh, he's coming for you. Yeah. So they say ten o'clock at the tavern. Uh, is ten o'clock at the. Yeah. And uh, the, uh, uh, the the next clip is kind of long, so we're gonna have to skip that one so we can get to the other ones. Uh, but Michelle, he decides to run and he starts packing his bags, but then he hears some clattering out in the street. Yep, it sounds like that 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 uh, that um dealer that merchant's wagon yep who happens to have a very strange name uh, i believe it's uh henry fate was his name yes yes <laughs> it's real strange eh? and uh and he he offers him which to me this is where there's an inconsistency in the episode because he's already picked up the magic gun that'll just shoot where whatever way will help him but then he goes out and this fate guy is like, hey, you know what? Here's this elixir that I have. You drink this and for 10 seconds, you'll be able to, you know, hit any target you want. And, you know, and he mm -hmm. even has him practice, you know, gives him a trial, a sample. And he shoots out a streetlight uh, with, with, you know, well, yeah. it's really far away. But if, if you remember, I think that that gun was under the control of Mr. Fate anyway, because if you recall, there was a segment in the episode where he goes off into the wilderness and tries to do some target shooting. Yeah, that's right. That's, yeah, and he, kind of the training montage. He, <laughs> right, and he couldn't hit water if he fell out of a boat. That's so, true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, so so there sort of was an explanation there that that magic gun was only magic because Mr. Fate made it magic, and 
I think the lesson there in that sequence was if if you think you could do it without Mr. Fate, when he went out to that training sequence, mm-hmm. he couldn't hit anything with that yeah. same gun. Yeah. So, uh, interestingly enough, uh, 10 o'clock rolls around after this conversation with Fate. He, he says, you know, I don't need anything from you, whatever, but then he offers him, offers him the elixir. He tries it out. He shoots at the streetlight, and then he gives him another one. And he said, take this right before your gunfight. And you'll 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 be a sure shot. So ten o'clock rolls around, and uh, lo and behold, his challenger appears in the tavern. You Denton? That's right. I hear you're supposed to be fat. You got a good chance to find out. I aim to. Step away from the bar, please, Mr. Denton. This is uh-huh. where our big twist comes about. Yes. Denton consumes the elixir, uh-huh. turns around to face his opponent, and lo and behold, in his opponent's hand, what is he holding, Joe? Oh, elixir. Yes, he has <laughs> the, a, the same, same little same little metal vial. vial. Right. So they've both consumed it, um, and... And I know I I was counting to ten, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this is what happens. They uh, they take their shots. Those are two guns hitting the ground, not bodies. This is a push, boys. No winner. Apparently, that's old West for a tie. And yeah, you won't be shooting anymore with that hand out. Not anymore. A couple of fingers are going to be stiff, too. But that don't make any difference. The way you stood up there, it'll be something to tell your grandchildren about. And the way it looks now, you'll live to have some. Just like me. You'll never be able to fire a gun again in anger. You're blessed, son. We've both been blessed. Hashtag blessed. He's lucky. He learned it early. Did you get him, Pete? No more than he got me. No more than he got me. Yeah. By the way, that's Doug McClure. You might remember him from uh, No Western, The Virginian, the series. Oh, okay. And he also was uh, in some sci-fi flicks, you might recall. Uh, the Land That Time Forgot. Oh, he did look familiar. Oh, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. So. That ought to be go. coming up on Svangoolie soon. <laughs> I'm sure. He's back in the studio, so he's he's going to have some new stuff. Very yeah, nice. Doug McClure played the, the, the boy that he, uh, he saved from having a gunslinger's life. Yeah. That's very cool. So, 
So yeah, so so Miles, that, that's a pretty fun little twist at the end there, huh? Yeah, yeah, that, that was good. And um, and of course we would it wouldn't be the same if we didn't do the quick wrap up, uh, Michelle from Rod Serling himself, right? Right. Here we go. Mr. Henry Fate, dealer in utensils and pots and pans, liniments and potions. A fanciful little man in a black frock coat who can help a man climbing out of a pit or another man from falling into one. Because you see, fate can work that way in the Twilight Zone. Oh. Always bragging about the Twilight Zone. Okay. Uh, yeah, so. but what's, what's cool about it is it's, it's not really the man, uh, it's not really fate harming the gentleman. It's yes. fate turning their life around to make it better. Oh no, I, I I concur. Yeah, that's you know that was pretty cool. So, um, because you know this is one of the happier endings to a Twilight Zone I've seen in a while. Yeah, just as so. long as the wounds don't get septic and kill them. <laughs> exactly. All right, Michelle, what else you got before we uh, uh, wrap things up? I don't uh, have much. I would want to give another honorable mention to one of our birthday girls uh, this uh, this uh, this week. Uh, Raquel Welch also had a birthday right. this week. I do not have her information in front of me, but uh, who who can forget her? Right. <laughs> I'm, she, she graced the fantasies of a lot of people back then. Yes, and she, of course, she was in the Hammer Cave Girl classic, uh, One Million Years BC. Which is available from our eBay store on DVD. So. Yes. <laughs> and uh, Joe, what do you got on the way out, sir? Well, uh, let's see. On Sunday on the Tim Coromal show, we'll be premiering a new product uh, to compete with Ivor Becton. On oh, the, boy. Yeah, yeah. It's called Compound Q. I put okay. a picture of it up there. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, look forward to that. <laughs> Does that remove the whole brain? Um, well, I think it says there on the package, uh, fast-acting dewormer, head lice remover. Oh, okay. Uh, oh, yes, effectively removes common sense. Yes. Okay, there you go. Yep. And, uh, Miles, thank you for that, Joe. Miles, what do you got on the way out? Uh, well, I think it's been about two weeks since uh, Louisiana got slammed by Ida. And... Um, it looks like Mother Nature has decided to give them a little more love. Not not as much love as Ida gave, but uh, yeah, they look like they're getting ready this week to get some more. So a little, a little more wetness, rain. I don't know how much wind, but uh, take cover, be safe, and um, hunker down. Duck and cover. Um, and all right, and I don't have much of anything else, uh, but hey, we're gearing up for uh, lots uh, a great month with October. Halloween festivities. It's going to be a hoot. Uh, stay tuned for that. Thanks for joining in. We'll see everybody next week. How dry I am. How dry I am. Nobody cares. How dry I am. <laughs>